Meanwhile, back at the Hall of Justice, our mild-mannered podcasters were bombarded by gamma rays, bitten by radioactive bugs, mutated by toxic waste, irradiated with cosmic rays, born into a world that doesn't understand them. First issue. It is Wednesday, October the 1st, 2014, and you are listening to the Talking Comics Podcast. I am your host, Bobby Shortle, and I'm in the house with Mr. Bob Ryer. Good evening. And on the line with Mr. Steve Say. Hello, eh? And, of course, on the line with Miss Stephanie Cook. Hi, hi. All right, we are back, although in a little bit different configuration mm. from the episode of the Talking Comics Podcast. This week, we have a very... Very special show for you guys. Uh, we're going to be talking with uh, Marguerite Bennett, writer of many, many things, including uh, Butterfly, uh, The Lois Lane One-Shot, a uh, few issues of Batgirl. Uh, she's got the Sleepy Hollow book uh, miniseries coming out as well as the she's a co-writer on the Angela Ongoing uh, mm-hmm. for Marvel. So stay tuned for that interview later in the show. Uh, we're also going to be doing our books of the week and answering some questions uh, from the forums that we promised to answer last week. Uh, but... Let's get right into it, guys. Let's start talking about comics right away. Um, so we're gonna go like right into the lightning round. That's what we're gonna do. We're gonna we're timed time to comics is gonna be very short. Whoa! In, the, in this. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> My voice uh, and Stephanie, I'm not gonna let you derail the conversation. I am good at that. I know you're very good at it. You're an expert at it. Thank you. Um, you were in those bandit movies in the old west. They took the train down the gully. <laughs> See, right now she's doing it without even trying to do it, because now we're talking about other things it, yes. other than <laughs> Sorry. Well, I think that was Bob. I know, but I, it was, I, you said, oh, I'm really good at it, and Bob started agreeing with you. See, you're just like a, it's, you're like a muse. You're a muse, muse for, of derailing, derailment. Yeah, <laughs> for derailing conversations. When you're around, conversations just go off the rails all, all over the place. Um, but yeah, uh, let's, let's, we, got, we got some books to talk about. I'm really excited to talk about a couple of the books uh, that I have on my list. I know uh, we're all excited as well. Um, Bob, I know when you sent me the email, you had about 16,000 books on your list to talk about. <laughs> I'm going to try. Um, it was the long list. It was one of the longer lists, I, I think. Uh, so we're going to go to you first, see if you can pull this one off. Okay. I got to change my timer back down to three minutes. It was at 30 minutes because I was... Thinking. I could do that. Yeah. <laughs> Shocking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, Bob, you have three minutes on the clock. Go. Okay. Ghost number eight, Chris Sabella. It's the wrap up to his first arc. It's been a bit heavy on the action and short on the deep insights on Eliza Cameron, but the last page here suggests some changes moving forward. So I really love the character, so I'm going to hang in a little bit more. So that's ghost number eight. New Avengers 24, as Justin points out in his review, this is a very grim book, but also very good. We discover there are a lot more smarter folks around than the Illuminati, and two of them may have sorted something out. And of course, time runs out, coming soon to a comic book near you. (laughs) Storm number three, Greg Pak and Scott Hepburn this time around. Look, we're seeing Greg Pak rebuilding Storm as a thinking, feeling, real character, and it's really making me very happy after some years away for her. 
Uh, here, Storm reconnects with Forge, who took her powers away back in X-Men 185. So with Callisto last issue in the big fights they used to have, it's like the reunion tour. <laughs> Harley Quinn futures in, number one. It's five years later, maybe, who can figure out what's going on here. But Harley decides to travel to the Bahamas in a shipping crate because you can save money that way. She never gets there because she crashes and ends up with, well, Bernie the Beaver, but he's just a skull now because he's been bitten in half by a shark. It's it's craziness, and there's a special guest star that you can you see by being on the cover. It's good old Mr. J and lots of old island movies involved here. Uh, longest title I'll talk about, Star Trek, Harlan Ellison's The City on the Edge of Forever, the original teleplay. We're into the heavy-duty stuff here now. Lots and lots of the Edith Keeler, the romance. Can Jim Kirk... Let the woman he loves die to put time right again. <gasps> if you've ever watched any Star Trek, you probably know that's going to go. Steed Mrs. Peel, where needed number three, ends up, it's the third issue in a six-issue arc, but it's the finale, so I don't know, but it's a very, very great 60s spy thing. If you're a fan of that, loved Velvet or Modesty Blaze or Butterfly, you might like Steed and Mrs. Peel, and that's all done, and I'm through. Are you serious? Yeah. You still have a minute left, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> I'm done. You're done? I'm done. Is there anything you want to expound on for your minute? No, I'm good. Of course. I'm good. I would, have, I would have added one of my books of the week, which was on here, but I made it a book of the week. Okay. I could talk about S.H.I.E.L.D. Okay. What, the show? Yeah. You watched it? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> what did you think of it? I thought it was pretty good. The season Honestly, two premiere, right? Season two premiere. We got Crusher Creel, Absorbing Man, which mm. is sort of fun. We got some very interesting character dynamics with some of the newer characters. Lucy Lawless, for instance, mm-hmm. which was a lot of fun. You get to see Agent, Agent Blandy McBland. <laughs> Is back, but now he's got a beard. Agent, so, agent. Yeah, so now, now he has some character. <laughs> but he's got some really good stuff. I really thought it was a nice launch for the second season, mm-hmm. much better than they started the first time around. And did you were you did you finish off the first season or did you go yeah. away? Oh, you did. did I, you watch- I went away in the middle the way I think nearly everybody did. Uh-huh. After the Winter Soldier picked back up, the series had a lot of more momentum. This, I think, picks up right from that. Cool. Awesome. That's good. That was unexpected, but a good thing to hear. I, I, I have been, I'm still only watched kind of the beginning of the first season. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but when people are telling me about how it improves, I'm, I'm interested in now watching it. And, and um, it looks, seems like it's turning into the show finally that I want it to be yeah. at the I beginning. I won't spoil anything, but if they get rid of a character that I think that they have gotten rid of, I will flip tables. <laughs> Character's the only good thing about the show. Um, yeah, we can't say too much. Yeah, but you probably know what I'm talking about, it, which is odd to say in reference to up-to-date television shows. Yes, right? Well, I discovered I have on-demand in my cable package all of a sudden, so now I could actually watch instead of having to videotape it on literal videotape. <laughs> Bob, have I told you lately that you're my favorite? (laughs) I used to have a VHS and I would record things and then my mom would conveniently tape over them. Mm. (laughs) Put on some Wheel of Fortune. Yeah. We had like one tape that we always used for um, Buffy and Angel because (laughs) me and my mom both watched it and I would work on Wednesday nights or whatever all the time. So she would just tape them both and we watch it. Um, But we always just tape over it. that's that's little tales from the videotaping world. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Be kind, rewind. Exactly, exactly. Uh, Steve. Bobby. Lightning round time. All right. Go. 
I've only got one uh, book for my lightning round this week because it's been a light reading week because of travel. My book this week is Pop Number Two from Dark Horse Comics, written by Kurt Piers with art by Jason Copland. Uh, this issue continues the story of Elle, a genetically engineered pop star escaped from the mega corporation that made her, and her stoner friend in shining armor, Coop, making their escape from two bounty hunters looking to capture or possibly kill them both. Um, the second issue takes a little bit of a uh, turn for the metaphysical in that Coop, in his infinite stoner wisdom, decides that it might be a good idea for Ellen him to go to the woods and sit down and smoke a bowl of dimethyltryptamine in order to jog her memory. For those who don't know what that is, it is also called DMT. DMT, when ingested, DMT is able to cross the human blood-brain barrier, allowing it to act as a powerful hallucinogenic drug that dramatically affects human consciousness. Depending on the dose and method of administration, its subjective effects can range from short-lived to milder uh, psychedelic states to powerful and immersive experiences. These are often described as a total loss of connection to eternal reality and the experience of encountering indescribable spiritual or alien beings and realms. Was that right at the so, top of your head, Steve? <laughs> no, no, I did some research for this. Um, as you can imagine, the fact that our killers, um, they, they arrive just at the height of L's uh, sort of mind journey, and that doesn't bode well for anyone involved. Um, I'm really seriously loving this book. It's only going to be four issues. It's a mini. It continues to be a weird tongue-in-cheek kind of delivery and introduces these really radical storytelling ideas. And it's the artwork for it is really off the wall. And even the artwork, when they do go on their trip inside the woods, becomes much more metaphysical. You get to see the blood pumping in the veins, the bones uh, of the skeleton within the bodies, and basically nature opening up within the mind's eye, uh, leading Elle to discover who she is and what she is. And it just pisses her off even more. Um, so that's pop number two. If you're looking for an off-the-wall comic, you won't find one better than this on the shelves right now. And awesome. that's my lightning round. Cool. Awesome. Uh, you have about 30 seconds left. Did you guys, did you watch Gotham? <laughs> I yes. didn't get to see Gotham. <laughs> no, no so good stuff. bad. It's so bad. Like, the music is awful. Like, it's still awful. Alfred is, like, somebody pointed out to me that instead of being a kindly guardian that's helping a boy that just lost both of his parents, he's kind of like an abusive uncle. Like, he's <laughs> one step away from, like, just backhanding bruce when he does something bad bruce no whack <laughs> like he's awful and it's not you can tell all the people that are cast in the show are really well cast it's the direction they're being given because mm-hmm. i don't know everyone in the show is aces their dialogue is the worst and their chemistry together also the worst so bad and it's like they couldn't call Selena Kyle, Selena Kyle. It's like, no, I don't go by Selena. I go by Cat, Like, cat, <laughs> Like, that, a cat. Like, me. someday, eventually, maybe Catwoman. Like, a cat. <laughs> Meow. So, like, Stephanie does not like it. <laughs> it's so in your face. Yeah, it sounds like I'm, it. I'm actually a little concerned about it. Um, I really enjoyed the, fir- the first episode quite a bit, but I'll talk about it later in the show, but I've been reading Gotham Central mm-hmm. and knowing where, not... I mean, it's not based off of Gotham Central, but they said that ideas have been taken. There's even some characters that show up in Gotham that are from that series. 
after reading that for a time and then knowing what they're doing with the show, I can definitely see it like Stephanie mentioned it getting under her skin about the too much of the origin stories for the villains. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it would have would have served the show much better if they had stuck to the the framework of Gotham Central a little bit more. I'm hoping that those elements are you know balanced well against the uh, villain origins because that would make a really sweet show. I'm a little bit concerned about that now. Bob, I know you watched it as well, right? Yeah, it wasn't as hateful towards it as Stephanie is, <laughs> but I didn't enjoy it as much as I did the first one, which I thought had potential. Mm-hmm. A lot of everything's connected, mm-hmm. and it's even more so as we had the big thing at the end. The cat thing really drove me insane. <laughs> that was yeah, just, right? just unnecessary. Thank you, Stephanie, mm-hmm. for <laughs> coining that word around here, but certainly was. I thought Bullock was pretty bad in this episode, okay. too. Like there, I felt like they improved their chemistry, Ben McKenzie and Donald Logue, and then they took a step back in this episode. Yes. Mm. Um, but seriously, you could get alcohol poisoning by putting two rules into a drinking game for this show per episode, <laughs> and those two rules would be every time Selena Kyle calls herself Cat, and every time somebody points out that Cobblepot walks like a penguin. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, well, we'll move on from the, the, the yeah. episode, but uh, that's the one here. I'm going to definitely still watch it, and, and I'll, I'll, oh, yeah, I'll totally. my thoughts yeah. as well. Um, yeah, so, uh, Stephanie, let's move on to some, some lightning round business for you. Aye. 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 <laughs> All right, and lightning round, go. All right, so the first thing I read was Roche Limit, number one, by Michael Morshi and Vic Maholtra. Um, I liked the concept of it, which was pretty intense the image uh previous thing kind of calls it 2001 a space odyssey with blade runner but i felt it was a bit too much for one issue um cool concept but it feels like something that'll read better overall as a trade i'm gonna check it out um collected when it's all done with but in the meantime too much for just you know first issueitis that's what it's got going on um, second thing is the Royals Masters of War, which, if you remember, a ways back is something that uh, I enjoyed the first issue of very much with a really cool kind of concept. Uh, in the royal families, they have special powers. They're superheroes. Surprise! They're not just rich. Um, and they each have different powers depending on whatever. And this takes place in World War Two. I believe, yes, no, maybe, I don't know, it takes place during the war. Um, And it was a really interesting concept. I read the rest of the series, and while I have to say the sixth issue kind of let me down a little bit, for the most part, it was a really solid concept, and I'd kind of like to see that fleshed out more. I know it was a Vertigo book, so I don't know, I think it was originally just meant to be a mini-series, um, but I felt like near the end, all of their ideas kind of were just like, and <laughs> the end, uh, it all kind of rushed, but it, again, it was a really interesting, you know, way to tell the story of the war and have, um, the Royals be these weapons of mass destruction. So, um, maybe in the future, if they revisit that and kind of 
flesh it out a bit more, I'd be interested to read on. Um, I, I would call it a tentative buy at this point. Uh, used, maybe, at BMV, if you know what that is. But it's definitely uh, cool in theory, and I just wanted to do a follow-up to um, my initial talk on it. So those are my books, I think. Yes, because nice. I moved one of them. Everybody is just killing it underneath the time mm. limit. <laughs> Any television show you want to talk about, Stephanie? <laughs> well, you guys, oh, we oh, time travel. We will talk about Sleepy Hollow briefly later. Yes. yes. <laughs> Here, I'll. How about the Misfits? The Misfits talked Misfits this week. I didn't talk about your own show, all right? That's for later, Stephanie. I'm just saying. Pimping your show in the middle of our show, all right? Well, I'm just saying the Misfits is a TV show, it and. Is. Oh. It is something that we talked about. I get it. All right. Okay. I thought you were going to do <laughs> you're, Outlander, you're, maybe, from TV time travel things. But no. no. Well, that's Mara. I, I feel like I'm taking away from Mara when I talk about Outlander. Oh. Apparently, yeah. she does love that show. She's talking about it on Twitter. She's not allowed to, like, she doesn't talk about anything else. <laughs> Wait until the next episode of Misfits, guys. Right. Stop with your buzz recorded. marketing for the Misfits. All right. Hey, Shut Bobby. Up. Nobody likes you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Steve. Bobby, did you pick up Shadow of Mordor? I did. I did. I haven't played it yet, but I'm very uh, excited to. Oh, I thought you were going to say, did you listen to Misfits? And I was going <laughs> to be like, Team High Five. <laughs> <laughs> Whose side are you on? You got to get him when he doesn't expect it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So like, I'm going to move on to my book of the week. Be like, yeah. My book of the week was Misfits. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you should really listen to that show. Yeah, it's, it's great. The Misfits, da- the dash Misfits.com. Two Thank S's. You, Bobby. Yes, like ladies. It's ladies. <laughs> All right. I'm going to do my freaking lightning round and, and time myself. Go. All right. First of all, uh, Booster Gold, number one. It's the Future's End story. It's uh, written by Dan Jurgens and has about like 15 artists uh, on the book. Um, this is, I think, attempting to. Uh, explain why the pre-New 52 Booster Gold is going to exist in the New 52. Um, It's a story of Booster Gold uh, unstuck in time. So he's popping in and out of time in all different eras, all different places. Um, And there's also another Booster Gold kind of being held captive um, and being tortured and they're trying, he's trying to f- and, and, and end up meeting up at, at some point uh, it's got some really cool moments and some very booster goldish moments he's one where he's fighting these giant anthropomorphized tigers um, that like are riding sure. motorcycles which is, is, a, is a dash of fun uh, the only problem is uh, I, I like Dan Jurgens, but uh, you know I think he's much better at kind of the serious tone than the silly tone and it's very much missing from this booster gold Aww. issue uh uh, Outcast number four. Uh, it, this series continues to be really fantastic, um, and it does so purely, I think, on the back of being a really great character piece. Because each issue, I mean, we have we've had a few exorcisms, but each issue is really focused on developing our our main character, mm-hmm. and they've done a really excellent job in, in doing that. I think that. He's not perfect, but he's sympathetic, and you want him to do better. Um, there's also, uh, you know, some side characters they've done a very good job bringing up, and uh, there's a, a villain that they're introducing who is eternally creepy. Um, and I think that the series just has a ton of promise um, 
And I, I think that it's nice to see Kirkman working on something uh, fresh and new. Uh, I'm sure this will get to 140 yes. issues as well at, at some point. And be a TV show. Yeah, and be a TV show. It's been show. great so far. Yeah, it's been really, really great. And the last book I want to talk about is is Saga, Chapter 23. Um, obviously, I don't want to get into a ton of detail because I, I feel like a lot of people obviously wait for the trade and, and, and there's a lot of spoilerific territory you can get into with this book. But this issue was, I think, one of the best issues of the book in a while. Not that it's ever been bad, because I think it's been consistently great. But this issue just, it had things coming to a crescendo that we've been waiting for for a very long time. Two characters meet who have been kind of on a collision course for the entire series, and they finally meet here. And um, it, it's just, I mean, obviously, it's gorgeous to look at. Fiona Staples, just consistently amazing. Um really really interesting dichotomies and um a redefinition of something that begins this arc that we thought meant one thing and now means something totally different so uh really good stuff from saga i i I can't recommend it enough um it just continues to be a phenomenal series and one of those things which i think benefits from just sticking with with the book and that's it for my lightning round i I was trying to catch up to Saga and I read issue 22 and I got like halfway through the book and I'm like, I missed like one or two issues. I have no <laughs> idea what's happening. And so I like went back cause like I thought I had caught up because Saga is something that I usually pick up every month. Mm-hmm. And I read like two issues back. I'm like, Oh, I definitely missed these. Like <laughs> I don't remember any of this. So I had to like go read those and then reread the ones that I, I knew what was coming. Mm-hmm. Whoops. Mm-hmm. I've been really um, enjoying this whole kind of uh, this whole arc that's been happening right now where with kind of the the international sort of like theater troupe and, and stuff like that, mm-hmm. I, I, I think has been a really interesting well, way to go about it. It's taken a really different turn from like Fugitive. Yeah, absolutely. Just yeah. kind of them being on the run. It's and yeah. that's not spoilers to anyone who's not reading no. it, obviously, but no, no. I, I really enjoy where they're going with it right now. Yeah, me too. Steve, what were you saying? Ah, uh, do you know, was this issue the last in the fourth arc? I think 24 I, is? 24 is, I believe. Yeah, I think it's their six-issue arcs. Uh-huh. Uh, but the end of this is a big... It's it's kind of... I mean, Saga's a great series, and if you, but if you go through the arcs, they kind of follow a similar structure, which right. is the issue before the last one is, like, giant and crazy and, and has big universe kind of changing things that happen in it. Um, so I think this, it usually says at the end, end of... Mm-hmm. Yes, it does. Yeah, and it didn't say at the end of this one. Yeah, I honestly think that this arc has probably been my favorite since the first. Mm. Um, it's had a lot of ups and downs. A lot of um, things that we thought were safe are not. And yeah. and I, I love that about the story. It it keeps things interesting and keeps you kind of on the edge of your seat and, and hoping for uh, for certain characters, of which there are many at this point. Yeah, there are a ton and a, and a, and a ton of new ones as well in, in this arc. Uh, which has been really refreshing, I think. Uh, the series just keeps itself fresh, you know, and, and that's something that I think is tough to do over a long period of time, but they, they continue to do it. Um, all right, yeah. so that's it for the, the lightning round. Uh, let's move on to our books of the week. Bob, you start us out. Surely. Red Sonia number 12, Gail Simone, Walter Giovanni, Adriano Lucas, and Simon Boland, colors and letters, respectively. This is the finale of Sonia's quest to gather six of the world's greatest origin, uh, artisans. Origins. <clears throat> I should have drink more drink instead of Coke. <laughs> she has to gather six of the world's greatest artisans in order to fulfill the wish of the dying Emperor, Emperor Samala, who will otherwise put a thousand slaves to death. 
Okay, of course. Standard, so, standard so stuff. So Sonya figures, well, look, there's some good stuff to be done here, and I can have some fighting mm. and grog and all this other stuff going on. But what's been really interesting, along the way, we've gotten to see much of what Sonya's depth of character really is. And she both teaches these people as she gathers them, and she learns from them. There's a lovely back and forth. I'm reminded, I don't know how many of you can remember this old movie, The Outlaw Josie Wales mm-hmm. with Clint Eastwood, where he's, it's a Civil War situation. His family gets burned, and he's lost on his own, and he's just wandering the countryside and picks up all these odd folks who become his own little new family. And that's really what's happened here. And with no loss of crazy action sequences, amazingly funny, Sonia's more randy than I remember her being in the little (laughs) reading I had done before, but it all plays beautifully. It really is a spectacular book and a character I really didn't care much about going into this just because it was Gail Simone, but I could have checked out after three issues, except this has just been sensational. Mm. As we get to the finale here, there are all sorts of reversals. I'm not going to say too much because this is the kind of book I know people are trade waiting. And if you have been, the second one is every bit as good as the first. It may even have a better payoff than the sort of plague dogs one we had the first time around. And Dynamite puts out a lovely trade when they do. The, the first one had all the alternate covers. It's going to make a heck of a read put into as this epic mm. of 7 to 12. So my first book is Red Sonia number 12. Anyone still reading Sonia? I am still reading it. Are you caught up? I am not. Okay, that's good. I didn't <laughs> uh, spoil no, I, anything. Honestly, I am about two issues behind, but I still I still have a very high respect and love for that book. I'm, I'm looking to catch up with it uh, as soon as I return home. No, you'll be very pleased. Yeah, sit in front of a roaring fire with some ale. You know, it'll be, it'll <laughs> the, co- the covers for that, for that series, um, the Jenny Frizen covers especially, have just been stunning. The, the, mm-hmm. the cover for this past issue that she uh, had produced is just one of my favorites of the whole year. And I mean, it's such a, like somebody asked us a question about under the radar series. And I, I feel like Red Sonia has her audience, but at the same time, I don't hear too many people talking about it. And it's such a, it's such a great book. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Artistically, Walter Giovanni's killed from day one. Yeah. The story is engaging, Mm -hmm. crazy, you know, Ultra-violent at some points, but in a world where that makes sense, it's yeah. all swordplay and monsters and so on and so forth. The fact that the trades contain all those variant covers save you a lot of time and a lot of money, <laughs> first of all, because they're all worth getting. You're talking about, mm-hmm. we've had Jenny Frizen, we've, Fiona Staples. I've got, thanks to my comic store, he's been very nice to me, and I've got the complete Stephanie Busema collection. Oh, it's awesome. I managed to get all 12 so far, and he sometimes, he, he, I have to fight off some people. Yeah. It's like, it, tough. I'm there's a, a level of comedy years. to that book that when it first started, yeah. I did not expect and has yeah. been consistent with every issue. Yeah, and th- that helps some of the darker elements of this. We are dealing with executions and plagues and slaves, and and it's it still, you get a good laugh, and that's, not more can be said than that, you have a good time reading a comic book. Mm. I have a question for you, Bob. Sure. So, so Gail buttons. Simone obviously has been on this book for a while, mm-hmm. and she obviously has a huge following. Uh, Red Sonia in this series, she doesn't shy away from being like very sexual. You know, she mm-hmm. wants sex. She like will go out and you know 
find somebody and be like, you, me. In my bed. bed. (laughs) But, you know, if a dude was writing this book, I feel like this would be something that, you know, the writer would get crucified for doing, but it's okay for Gail to do. Do you think there's any, like, any substance behind that? Or what do you... Like that there's a double standard? Yeah. Well, I... Anyone can write anything badly or well, men, women, so on and so forth. In this case, I think what you have here is this is a character owning her own sexuality. She is not the object. She's the subject. Mm -hmm. And I think that does change it. What you're saying, though, I think there could be a double standard if one of these people we've castigated for writing badly did Sonia without the element of her control of the situation yes it, it could be thought of as very poor if however if let's just say i'll throw a name out there if this were chris, chris claremont writing this famous for writing wonderful hmm. layered female characters and wrote this character this way you probably there'd be some small outcry but not what there could be you make a very very valid point though steph i think it, this could go very badly very quickly, unless on the exactly the right hands. In this case, it is someone who, yeah, is going to catch a lot of positive vibe for doing it. Mm, I mean, I think you're right. I think you're about the the object and the subject, right? Because um, Red Sonia is is not behaving any differently than Conan, Conan would behave yes. in, in a book. Um, it just happens that she's a woman, right? And, and she is, like you said, taking what she wants and not having it th- forced upon mm-hmm. her, and not um, she's not the Everyone, everyone's going after and pursuing and all she is is, is a pursuit you know she is the, the pursuer so i think that that makes a big difference in, in the book obviously but mm-hmm. it's a fine line to walk right and, and whether gail you know female or male you, know, you have to you have to be cognizant of that line and mm-hmm. i and i think that what happens a lot of time and I, I think with some male writers i just don't think they think of it you know, I, 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 and that, and I don't think they're being necessarily misogynistic. I just think they don't think of it that way, right? Mm-hmm. Some do. Like, look at Greg Rucka. Greg Rucka always writes, yes. you know, um, people in charge of their own destiny. And that goes, you know, for male or female characters as well. When a character isn't in charge of their own destiny, they're not a good character. You know, when they're not taking control of what they're doing, they become, you know, a, a, a plot device rather than a character. And I think that what happens with something like Red Sonia is Gail Simone is very, very cognizant of that line and she's writing it in a very particular way. Um, and I think a lot of times when we talk about this, some people think we, we don't think that sex belongs in, in, in comics or sexiness or anything like that. And that's not the case. It's just they're, they're, the book has to do it in a way... It, let's say If the book is about misogynists and it's about dealing with those issues that's a different story if you're dealing with nasty ugly people who do nasty ugly things that's a different story if you're dealing with heroes then there has to be a way to write it that makes it makes them heroic you know and i think that's the line that often is tough to find for for some writers Mm. yeah Um, when it becomes a trope yeah and not an actual real part of the plot Mm -hmm. you're lost exactly yeah i mean that's what i think about it anyway okay that was Awesome, Steph. That was a very good question, Stephanie. Well, it just came into my mind because, I mean, you know, we don't think about these things all the time when a woman's writing the book. We just kind of accept that, um, oh, well, it must be fine. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if whatever, if Gail Simone turned out to be a pen name, if, you know, whatever, and you found <laughs> yeah. out it was a guy, would it then also be acceptable? So, right. Just, yeah. Yeah. No, it's a very good question. It's yeah. something that we, I, I think, often, you know, it, it 
you know, big time female writers in comic books are obviously not the rule. They're the exception. So I think you're right. Sometimes we do just kind of go, she's writing it. It's a woman. So it must be the right way to write it, you know? And I think, I think hopefully as the, the percentage changes, that way of thinking will change as well because you should just be able to go on it. No matter what the name, you should be able to take the name off the book and read it and go, is is this, does this work or or it doesn't work? Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Now we had some Catwoman issues, right? Yeah. Written well, and in a similar way, yeah. not well. Yeah. We 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 have talked plenty we, yeah. of mess about Andosenti. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Uh, I was trying to not say it. Yeah. She wrote some other things pretty well in the old days, mm-hmm. not so much this. So should we move on to more positive yes. territory? Even though it is a, another finale, I'm all about finales today. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's the time. It's of the coming year. back though. It's barely a finale. Yeah, <laughs> this is true. But it's Mighty Avengers 14. Al Ewing, Salvador La Roca, Matt Mia on colors, and Corey Pettit on the letters. Now, this is not only the end of the Deathwalker arc that's been going on here, but also the first volume of Al Ewing's Mighty Avenger comes to an end here. Mm-hmm. And I expressed just gently my doubts about this series when it began and internally i had tons of them that this could have ended i was not familiar with mr ewing's work at all this could have very well just been the token urban collective Mm -hmm. this really quickly became my favorite avengers book and i love jonathan hickman and i've loved a lot of other things but boy this just month after month just kicks it out of the park and that spot just reinforced by this last issue the Death Walkers from who are trying to take over the Earth, the four of them have melded into one giant, really horrendous creature, who we see on on the cover. But it's a big, a big, big nasty, big big boss video game end of the <laughs> end of the level kind of character, who has actually enslaved all of humanity. They're all under his thrall, and they'll do what he says. The only thing is, this ultimate bad guy has not counted on the indomitable force of will of Luke Cage, and. I one of my favorite characters for years and years, but here you've got everything that made Luke Cage what he is. He doesn't have the flashiest power set. What he has is a huge heart. And that's enough to change the tide of battle here, to break free all the rest of humanity, and then eventually shows you what a great team the Mighty Avengers are and I'm not going to spoil that either. I'm going to be mysterious here. But you get a finale here that really is uplifting and wonderful. And every character gets to have a moment. Even if it's only a thought, it's a moment. There's just been a great, great book. I, I know the trades are a little behind because you're 14 issues. And we had some of those events early on. So you can, they're going to be two outlier issues unless Marvel does something weird and mm-hmm. gives you eight books for $20. If people have had Avengers burnout and have backed away from some of these side titles, I know that you guys have liked some of the other mm. littler ones. This to me is just an excellent group with a really neat set of characters with Monica Rambeau. He brought back Blade here, which was a lot of fun to see him. The Blue Marvel, Adam Brashear, great character they've used only sporadically through, I think it was Fear Itself was mm-hmm. where he first showed up. I don't know where we're going next, but we end with this, a very similar sort of we need to get bigger. Mm-hmm. In the same way that the mainline books did. And this is going to be Captain America and the Mighty Avengers with Sam Wilson, who mm-hmm. did appear in some of these early on, had a real nice dynamic with Luke, which I hope continues here. I hope this team continues and we just start adding some people. And that this book, with that boost, will really take a jump upwards because sales-wise, not, not doing not so, so good. Yeah, I'm really excited about the relaunch. And for I mean, I, I don't want to beat a dead horse at that point, but I, I, 
I just couldn't get past the art stuff in, mm-hmm. in, in Mighty Avengers. So the fact that we're we, we're keeping the writer and we're moving on to a new artist has me excited to, to read it. Because I, I do, I mean, I take your opinion very much to heart on stuff like this, and, and you've said such nice things about it that uh, I, I did really want to get into it, but I just couldn't get past the visuals mm-hmm. of it. And so the fact that it's coming back with a new, um, you know, a new artist and, uh, you know, Sam Wilson, Captain America, which, you know, I'm not sure if I'm going to be diving into the main series. Mm-hmm. So it, I think it'll be a cool way to kind of get yeah, into get that. Get a taste of them. Yeah, yeah I agree. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Feel the same way. Anybody else? still on this book or it's just me just you just me. you bob it's the curse of, <laughs> curse of bob strikes again and yes. it, but at least it's not canceled no, it's, it's not coming canceled. back yes it was canceled for an afternoon and i could scream and yeah. org time no, that's, time that's ran one out. of uh one of those collected afterward because bob speaks so highly of it books mm-hmm. yeah absolutely absolutely yeah. all right so that was uh mighty avengers number 14 14 and red sony number 12, 12. all right okay steve yeah. You're going to be up next. I want you to tell me about Blood Song, a silent ballad, which sounds like like a bullet from my Valentine album title. <laughs> it kind of <laughs> does, doesn't it? <laughs> um, Blood Song, a silent ballad is a 2002 title, and it was published by Dark Horse Comics. I seem to be picking up a couple of things from them lately. Um, I found this on the 399 rack at Heroes uh, Comics in London, Ontario. And what Blood Song is, is it's a silent narrative uh, told primarily through the use of the colors of blue, white, and gray. And uh, it's the story of a young woman who lives with her family very, very happily and very simply in a kind of a remote utopia uh, until the day that their land is discovered by a band of soldiers who then do what soldiers do. have done in books in the past and they basically level the place burn it to the ground kill her family um of course she was off gathering water at the time witnesses this whole thing from um behind a few bushes and decides to take the family dog and flee for her life with the soldiers in pursuit uh after discovering a rowboat and uh she takes to the water several days weeks i have no idea uh kind of pulls a tom hanks's castaway move and then uh, eventually winds up in like modern times or in, in a cityscape and then has to learn how to live there in, in sort of this new life with all these new buildings and new wonders and technology that she's never known before. And what struck me about this book is that all of the, all of the first of all, all the color work is, like I said, it's primarily blue, white, and gray. But there is color throughout the book, but it's very it's used very sparingly. So anytime that you see color, it really, really stands out. And it's kind of a flag for the reader to to pay attention and to realize that whatever's in color um, is has a significance and has a has a meaning uh, to it and how the story's gonna flow and whatnot. Uh, art wise, it's got kind of a, minimalist east of west uh vibe too with a little bit of a japanese influence so it's very very uh stylized very very cool and what's really beautiful about it is it's well over 100 pages um probably closer to 150 there isn't a single word in the entire book so it's just page after page after page of gorgeous gorgeous um looks to be 
not so much sketched as it is painted on canvas. And, um, you know, when you don't, we've read issues like the, the Batman and Robin silent issue and things of the like where, you know, we've stated in the past that you can really tell a story just by the artwork that you don't necessarily need the words every time. And this is a prime example of that. Um, I went through, I read this last night and I must have gone through just a, a, a gamut of emotions and such. I mean, I, at first I was calm and it was nice and, you know, this little island utopia that her and her family had had, people were fishing, you know, giving back to nature and they cook the fish up and everybody's full and everybody's happy. And then the soldiers come and it becomes this frightening situation with bullets flying and, you know, people shouting in the trees and escape and all of that stuff. Uh, the wonderment of being alone at sea for weeks on end and the perils you have to fight with that. And then coming to the new city, it was all over the map. Um, and all of that without having any dialogue uh, whatsoever. So um, it's something that if you are able to find it, it is completely and, and entirely worth your money. Um, and I recommend picking it up wholeheartedly. Um, and that's a book from Dark Horse Comics called uh, Blood Song, the Sil A Silent Ballad uh, by Eric Drucker. Cool. cool. So, any and questions I... about it? Because I feel like I rambled. No, no, I think you explained it very well. It sounds really cool. It is. It's quite, it, it's, it's quite mesmerizing. It's, it's one of those things where, you know, you just have that page. It's a full page of her... Of the, of, the, of the young woman looking out from the trees or looking out from the bushes as what, what's happening with her family. I mean, she went from being probably of about 17 years of age at this point of growing up for 17 years on this remote island with friends and family and being happy. And then, you know, soldiers come in and they basically sweep the place um, and she has to escape into the city, which introduces its own set of peril and its own mysteries and all of these things. And it's just the use of color in the book is absolutely wonderful because it paints this weird illusion that you're safe and that you're, and you know, with the calming blues and whites and grays and everything's nice, but then you have, you know, the red of the fires, the, the crimson of the blood and just all of this stuff popping out at you the you know the green parrots um escaping the trees as they hear the gunshots and stuff like that and um visually it's stunning and and one of those unique comic book reading experiences where the the pictures are used to tell the whole story and you leave it feeling just sad but hopeful at the same time if that makes sense mm -hmm. yeah absolutely yeah i really i really enjoyed it i had a feeling when i uh I picked it up and I thumbed through it that uh, I said, I was like, oh, I have to get this. Like, what is this doing on the $4 rack? This is, <laughs> this is ridiculous. Is this an oversized hardcover, Steve? One it's of not. Larger it's, ones? Um, it's kind of, the, it looks like the size of a, like a, well, I actually uh, describing it as a novel is not going to help. Um, it's definitely, definitely in like oversized paper, paperback format is how okay. I found it. Mm -hmm. um, but I wouldn't, it's not, all too large. I'm trying to think of a of a book that people might have found on the shelves that would be comparable to it. Um, if you've ever seen Joe um, Joe Hill's uh, paperback version of Horns, that's that's okay. about the size of it. Cool. So cool. absolutely gorgeous. Um, huge, huge book. The first two pages alone are um, 
just like a series of notes and music written on a page and then you turn the page and it opens up to um like a caterpillar cocooning itself and then into a butterfly and then showing the beginning of the universe and we zoom in and zoom in to this little remote island and that's where we end up and then we zoom out and we're you know in this giant city and it's crazy it's it really is it's crazy and it's something you could read in about 10 to 15 minutes and cool. uh especially since there's no dialogue involved you can just pass it on to another person and they can they can it's a conversation starter within minutes cool awesome um and you mentioned before right uh, that you you teased a little bit talking about gotham central so you you were you read a little of that yeah my um my my girlfriend surprised me with uh volumes one through four of gotham central when i got ah. to canada i was oh so grateful and uh i happened to read i picked up volume one and i read issues one through four um gotham central is written by ed brubaker and greg rucka uh this particular volume had art by michael lark and colors by noel giddings matt hollingsworth lee lowridge and letters by lily uh schubert and it is all right so the whole thing with this is gotham has just come out and it's it's hit fox and people are watching it whether you you like it or not um, it is loosely, very loosely, apparently, based on Gotham Central. So coming off of liking the show, I had like an, like an extra fever or wanting to read this book. And oh, my God, it's it's awesome. Bobby, have you read this? I haven't. No, actually, um, oh, dude, I, I, I have actually the, the, all, the whole series on order, though, all the trades. <laughs> oh, you you'll be talking about this. When mm. when you get your chance and for your books of the week, we'll definitely be bringing this back up. Um, it's right up your alley. Cool, like awesome. it, like it practically had your name written on the cover <laughs> when I, I started reading it. It's so good. It's so good. Uh, Gotham Central. For those who don't know, it focuses on the GCPD's top detectives, uh, of which there are many. So I'm not going to rattle off their names. Um, though two of them actually appear in the Gotham show. At least they did in the pilot. Uh, so that was interesting to see them in comic book form. Um, so top um, GCPD's top detectives, as they attempt to solve crimes throughout Gotham with as little uh, little help from Batman as possible. It's not that they despise Batman. It's just that they don't appreciate feeling like his cleanup crew, um, particularly when the cases that they're working on uh, involve the victims being like of their own. Like if a cop dies... I mean, think about how many crimes you've seen go down in Gotham City and how many casualties there have been from, you know, Freeze going crazy or the Penguin or even the Joker. And all the people that die, we're following Batman. So we never get to see, like, the fallout from all that street-level stuff. And that's exactly what this series is about. So issues uh, one through four that I read focus on the investigation of a kidnapping that eventually turns to murder of a 14-year-old girl. Uh, with clues not adding up and Batman off taking care of other matters, it's up to the GCPD to bring the killer to justice. Uh, I've already said how much I'm in love with the book. Um, what's really cool is that the stories are told from the detectives' uh, perspectives, and I'm finding that it holds just as much weight and carries just as much quality with it as any other Batman book. Um, like the art, the way that it is, is it just, it's so close to the characters. Like there's not, there are chase sequences. There are, you know, whole panels of cityscapes and stuff like that. But essentially 
all of the, if you want to think of it as camera work for the panels is all like right in there with the detectives. So wherever you are, whatever situation you're experiencing it, you feel like you're in the room or you're standing in the alleyway with them, or you're, you know, behind the tape of the crime scene. Everything is super close to like the nitty gritty of what they're dealing with. Um, trying to think of anything else I could add. Um, what do I have here? I said, uh, what happens when, Oh, here's a question. What happens when Batman arrives on a scene in which casualties are already a factor, uh, who deals with all the paperwork, who deals with the grief <laughs> and especially who deals with all the, the survivor's guilt. I mean, we know that, that Batman's got his, but imagine the, you know, the mood and mentality of these cops who, the victim is their partner and Batman is kind of seen as this, you know, specter of the night and they're all kind of expected to adhere by his, not so much his schedule, but just his, his way of going about and solving crimes that as much as the cops try to solve the big ones with, you know, all the major Gotham villains, it's always Batman that seems to get them in the end. And, and gets the the credit for having solved the case. And as Batman readers and as Batman fans, we don't always get to see, you know, all the inner workings of how those crimes actually get solved and written down and put away and how society in Gotham, whether they learn from them or not, but how they kind of walk away from these giant capers and crimes that Batman always seems to be a part of. But Batman just comes in, he does his thing, says a couple of words, and then he flies off into the night. There's so much more after that. Like, there's life There's life after Batman, mm -hmm. I, sh I should say. Right. Um, super, 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 super good. Um, I hope I'm doing it justice, because even after four issues, it is simply amazing. Um, just this perspective that I've never read like as much as I love Gotham, as much as I grew up with Gotham from childhood and into now, I've only ever really seen it from Batman's perspective. I've never seen it from the perspective of the GCPD. And, you know, aside from maybe like Bullock or Gordon, everybody else, their involvement gets shelved. Mm -hmm. And this is their story. And there's some really, really great personalities within the GCPD um, and some really um, great relationships happening as well. Like I find myself growing into characters and growing into the partnerships and who they're paired off with and how the personalities and the way in which they solve crimes, how they bounce off one another. And like, there's kind of a relationship blooming, uh, in the first arc that I can see. And I'm just sitting there kind of like soap opera ish wanting it wanting to see it blossom and wanting to see it become something and then there's you know the jealous cop over on the other side of the office that's you know glaring at them from you know the the whiteboard that he's working on and whatever so there's also like all these office drama and politics and all these things and it's just a really really unique look at Gotham and the crimes that happen within it and I'm enjoying the hell out of it yeah, Rob has been trying to get me to read it since I think I met him the day um, I had him. Dude, so. you're gonna you're gonna flip out for it. I know I have a good idea for for what you like, and as soon as you open it up, by the end of that first issue, you're just gonna go, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm ex I mean, look, it's it's 
Rucka and Brubaker and right. Michael Lark yeah. is who does the art on uh, Lazarus. Right. So uh, yeah, it's super exciting. I'm, gl- I'm glad to hear that you're enjoying it and I can't oh, wait so good. to read it. But just one more thing. It's uh, interesting that for all that I've read of Batman and for all the times that I've seen him deal with villains and such, like at the beginning of the first story, we're dealing with Mr. Freeze um, because it's Brubaker and because it's, it's Rucka and they tend like, they know crime drama. The both of them know really good. And the pairing of them, you know, it's just, it's, it's steeped in quality. And one of the things about Mr. Freeze is I see him like freeze people and it's always like, Oh, it'll wear off in a couple of hours. I've never actually seen him kill anyone. You get to see him dispatch somebody at the start of this series. And without being overly graphic, it is like like hyper violent and quite disturbing on a level in Batman that is rarely seen. Mm-hmm. So if you're all interested in stuff like that, a really super gritty Batman story that doesn't even have a whole lot of Batman in it, this is if you haven't read the series this is the one that you want to look you want to look for cool awesome so that's gotham central volume one yep and um what is it a what's the other blood call uh blood song blood song a silent ballad it's close (laughs) no it's okay i was calling it blood moon for like four days (laughs) all right awesome stephanie what do you got for us book of the week i have got something that ties into our guest later on oh my goodness what what (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and I, you know, was all about this even before we heard that she was going to be here, so I'm not just kissing butt. <laughs> um, but yeah, so in case that wasn't enough of a lead-in for you, uh, my book of the week is Butterfly Number 1 by Marguerite Bennett and Arash Amel, with art by Antonio Fuso. Uh, with Nicely a great done. <laughs> thank you. And beautiful cover by Phil Noto, although you just say Phil Noto and the rest kind of you know, automatically gets put in there. Um, This came out last Wednesday from Boom. Uh, I've been covering a lot of Boom books the last (laughs) few weeks. They just are putting out some really interesting comics, but I guess it's Archaea technically, isn't it? Yeah, Yeah. I mean, it's the Archaea side of Boom. Yeah, yeah. but all the same cup of tea, more or less. Yeah. Uh, Anyways, well, I... I was hesitant to pick up this first issue because it is a three-issue miniseries or four issues? Four simply? issues. Four, four issues. Yeah. Um, and Archaea's books so far, when they've been released uh, as single issues, have just read really poorly as individual issues to me. Um, and I don't mean that they're bad books. They just don't feel like they're divided into chapters. They feel like they're just cut for the sake of releasing them as single issues yes i I totally agree with you um so i was really hesitant to pick this up but it was something that i had actively been following in previews so i did want to you know give it a chance at least for the first issue and decide whether or not to wait for the trade or um to follow it for you know the duration of while they put out the single issues and i found that i really enjoyed this this book um it's kind of your in a in a lot of ways it's kind of your stereotypical spy thriller um but it's sort of along the lines of like nikita meets uh velvet meets black widow uh with like a touch of i don't know there's something i'm like like george clooney in the american 
<laughs> but if it was a lady, a sexy lady, um, you know, this, this woman, she's a deep cover agent. She has no background because she's just become a complete ghost. And um, like, you know, like Velvet, uh, her cover's blown and, well, actually her cover's not blown in Velvet, but um, she's set up for a murder that she didn't commit. Um, shit goes bad and, you know, she has to deal with it. She has to figure out what's going on. And um, a series of clues leads her to someone from her past that she thought was very much not alive. And, uh, you know, that's kind of where things leave off. And it's a really, really interesting build up to the rest of the book. Um, in, in a lot of ways, I guess, like, I want it more out of the issue. But I guess, like, it's, it's a really good first issue, considering how um, Archaea has been dividing up these graphic novels. Um, mm. I did want more character development i did want more of the story but um all things considered it still read very well and did intrigue me enough to want to check out the second issue and you know by that time i'm halfway through <laughs> so i might as well just follow it um but the art is really great really really interesting and um it just the, the characters seem really complex and really just interesting to me mm -hmm. uh so i want to i want to check it out i'm looking here and antonio fuso is the artist behind the critically acclaimed run of gi joe cobra <laughs> um, la, la, la. yeah so yeah i'm i'm definitely curious to check out more of this um yeah i um i i enjoyed the issue but i think i think i felt even a little more strongly than you did that I wanted more yeah. out of it. Um, there's some very interesting narrative things happening as far as structurally going on, uh, which I think is really cool. Um, some kind of uh, jumping around in time and, and stuff like that, which I, th I thought was a definite, uh, li it was more interesting literally, li literally than I don't know how to say that word in the right way right now. Um, <laughs> uh, then, then I it really expected, right? I expected a more straightforward spy story and it really wasn't that. Hmm. Um, but uh, I did feel like, you know, I felt like this this issue was pretty much all set up and, and backstory mm -hmm. and, and not any sort of really forward motion on, on the plot. I mean, obviously, we get a, a big revelation, but that revelation is kind of the, the point of the entire story. So it, it's not really moving the story along because we've just met the character. Mm -hmm. So I, I did feel like there was some, a little bit missing on, on those points. But I do think it is well written and it looks great. I mean, the art in it is, I think, kind of worth the price of admission alone. And I wish, honestly, that every single company put out their books with the kind of like stock and and quality. Oh, that cover? Yeah, that Arkea oh, does. I love that cover. They did it with this. They do it with the last broadcast. the The Jim Henson book uh, as well sort of has that yep. same feel the to it. Cardboardy kind of. That yeah. Soft cover. Yeah, I like feel like I'm getting something like I I paid money for this and like it feels <laughs> like it was like crafted. You know, it doesn't feel just just you know um, thrown together kind of thrown yeah. together exactly mm -hmm. and i think that they were always great with that with their hardcovers and they somehow got to bring that to the single issue aspect of it as well which i think is yeah. is, is really great yeah, yeah well. Archaea's presentation of their books is always top quality yeah 
Absolutely. Now, it does sound as if both of you, uh, Steve, did you read it? I did. Okay, so so I'm going to say all of you. Hmm. I haven't. I'm going to borrow Bob. <laughs> says, really? We didn't talk about that, Bob. Okay. <laughs> I'm kidding. You could talk. That when you read a second issue with all that's been put in place, you might reread the first and think differently of it, depending mm-hmm. on what starts to happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, my, my problem is that there's nothing in the first issue that's not quality. It's just, and I, and I, and maybe, more. And more. maybe it's mm-hmm. just, maybe it's perception more than anything else. I think Steph and I are talking about the same thing, which is that I don't know if this is still the case, but I feel like a lot of the previous books from Archaea that released in single issues, like we said before, were just graphic novels, just chopped, 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 in, chopped in places. Yeah, and then and then put out a single issues, and I don't know if Butterfly. That's the case of Butterfly. I don't know when this book was started compared to you know when mm-hmm. um, when that kind of changeover happened with them when they got purchased by Boom. But it, it still has sort of that same feeling, right? That this is part of something that was meant to be put out all together in all its parts together, and said with arbitrarily mm-hmm. not arbitrarily. I mean, it has a stopping point, and it's a relatively good stopping point for what's being told here. It's just, right. if this was just the first 20 pages of a longer story, it would be awesome. You'd be like, this is a yeah. really great beginning to this story. Gotcha. But as a, as a contained issue, it left me a little bit wanting in that way. It's kind of like, and to be, I haven't really re- watched a lot of 24, but um, to me, uh, it, it feels like you're watching an episode of, say, 24. and mm-hmm. that all Or Homeland like- or something like that. Yeah, and it all just like takes place. It takes place, and you're getting to like all of the good stuff. And you know, it's twenty three fifty nine, and then it's over. And you're like, what? <laughs> no, right? I yeah. was just getting into that. I was, right. I was just, oh, well, I the have to wait a week. <laughs> the partnership with Boom and Archaea. I mean, that's relatively new, right? That was maybe well last like a year? year ago. Yeah, last year. Oh, yeah. So it's, it has been a little while. Yeah. But I mean, maybe we'll see. We'll see them start to produce more, you know, single issue ish type things uh, moving forward. Maybe these stories were planned, and they just decided, hey, you know, in order to get the single issue thing started, let's break up some of our books. Well, I think and- that's exactly what they did. Yeah, I definitely yeah. think that's what's going on. Yeah, I, uh, yeah, and I think you're absolutely right, Steve. I think in the future it definitely will change mm-hmm. um, when they're when they're kind of planning things from the ground up. Mm to be issue by issue right instead of collected right. um yeah it's uh, nice to get a preview though of i mean i know it's not meant to to work that way but if mm-hmm. you read the first issue and you like what you see and something that's maybe a four-parter i mean by all means continue to buy the single issues but at least you can get a taste and perhaps know that you you know indefinitely want to buy the trade when it comes out as a whole yeah, no, I, and actually, I think that's a great point because a lot of times in the past with Archaea, I would see these beautiful graphic novels come out, but it's tough to take a chance on something that costs $25, $30 if it's something you don't know and you have no idea what, what, what the quality is of it, right? Mm-hmm. right. But he, like Steve was saying, get to read an issue of Butterfly. Like, I really like that. I'll just wait till they release the thing together, and I know I'm going to like it because obviously it's a quality piece of writing. Um, I honestly felt very similarly about the last broadcast, which I read the first yes. issue of, and I was like, this is really interesting, but this is obviously just one section of a much sure. larger story that I could be getting all put together. So I, that's, I think that's a book I'm going to check out when it's all put out. Um, and I, I feel, I think Butterfly does a better job than that book of being a single issue, yes. but I still think that it, it fits within that. that um, but I wonder how well, like it would be interesting to see the sales Mm-hmm. from Archaea and how the single issues do after the first issue. Yeah, it would be, absolutely. Um, 
I guarantee though that they make they probably make more money doing the, the single trades. issues. Oh, they they probably make more money on the trades, but I guarantee you it's more profitable for them to put out single issues as well. Because I think you get what we get is like you spend four dollars or three fifty, and then you spend twenty dollars later end, right? instead of maybe never spending twenty dollars on it. Right. You know, um, but cool. That's Butterfly number one, Stephanie. What was the other book you wanted to talk about? I was going to initially put this in um, uh, my lightning round uh, and not to plug Misfits again, Bobby, (laughs) but we recorded two shows in a row last weekend uh, and one is for next Monday. And I talked pretty extensively about um, Seconds by Brian Lee O'Malley there, Uh, but I did want to give it a mention here and it felt like, to me, it felt kind of like a brush off to just put seconds in my lightning round when it's such an astounding book. Uh, so I just want to take the time to say thank you to Bobby for, you know, going to bat for it right when it came out and forcing me to seek it out when all the stores, you know, had got the memo that this is going to be a big deal and we're sold out. Um, oh, that's right. You were on the show, right? The week it came out and I texted you. I was like, you've got to read this thing. <laughs> I think I was on the show, were but you? like I hadn't got it. Oh, okay. I had been in um, like the Silver Snail or I'd been away or something. So I didn't pick it up. And uh, like the next week I was like, oh, well, I have to pick it up. By that time, though, all the comic shops had like sold out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it was a mission trying to find a copy. And I was like calling around Toronto because I didn't want to like Amazon was even sold out, too. Mm-hmm. Um, oh. So it, it, it was really hard to find for like a couple days but you call brian lee o'malley you're like hey buddy (laughs) buddy hey pal um can you do do me a favor please uh but yeah i i read it all on sunday and just sat in bed and was like this is so great i loved the colors i loved the story and i loved that you know uh it it's this really beautiful tale that's kind of told in a completely ridiculous art style. But at the same time, Brian Lee O'Malley's art has these really, uh, uh, fine art kind of moments where his, his imagery gets, um, just really beautiful and it's mixed in with this really cartoony style. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, on, You'll hear on Misfits too that I go into it again a bit more, but um, I just thought it was a really beautiful story. And if you know you weren't a fan of Scott Pilgrim or the art style, I still think that regardless, this is worth your time to check out. Yeah, I mean, obviously, Steve and I both praised it to high heaven the week it came out. Mm-hmm. Um, the I think a big part of that too is is, is the addition of the colors. Um, I, I think that they bring out even more of that kind of fine art look what you're talking about. And I think you're absolutely right. I think that at times it, his, his cartoony style becomes almost so surreal that it, it kind of goes into that, you know, kind of fine art territory. Like the, that kind of, the, 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 the kind of tree imagery that he uses in, in some of those places is, is really gorgeous and, and striking. And I think that it's one of those books that, um, you know, it, it has a lot of in, a lot in common with Scott Pilgrim, right? There, there is there is definitely common commonalities between the two of them, um, but it feels like Scott Pilgrim a little bit grown up. You know, like mm-hmm. the next stage of his life, what what it would be like, 
And I think that's pretty cool. Grown-up problems. Yeah. But I know you, you read <laughs> yeah, it right I after. Loved we, it. Yeah. And here's the thing about the art. It might be cartoony on the surface mm. in the way that it's simplistic. Mm-hmm. The layouts are not. Right. It is real. Mm-hmm. The camera angles chosen, the movement within mm-hmm. panels and within the page itself as you move within the environments, it's really very mature. This yeah. is not simplistic right, at all. No. In presentation. It's yeah. a double page spread where it's the layout of um, Katie's basement restaurant. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Seconds. And it's just so cool. Like, I actually kind of felt like I was playing like a Nintendo DS game yeah. as I was like, I was like, oh, I just have to go around this corner. <laughs> like, it's just like the, the depth um, mm-hmm. is really cool. And I think actually Nathan Fairburn, Barn, um, who did the colors, is owed. Uh, almost as much praise as Brian Lee O'Malley is. Yeah, absolutely. It, he makes the book pop mm-hmm. in a way that O'Malley couldn't without his help. Yeah, absolutely agree. Absolutely agree. Um, it's nice to talk. That, that book has stayed in my mind ever since I read it too. I just love that thing mm-hmm. so much. Um, and I texted you. And again, I'm spoiling like my. Well, <laughs> you know, I, I'll save that part. I was, I'll text you after and ask you about. A okay. Thing. Okay. But, yeah. <laughs> carry on everyone else all right so (laughs) seconds by brian lee o'malley um and butterfly by marguerite bennett so that's four out of four talking comics or say go buy it yes true yes (laughs) full full seal of approval from talking comics (laughs) (laughs) all right uh move on to my books of the week here uh first thing i I think that actually makes it mandatory for it to be on the best list oh yeah we definitely will be oh yeah yeah oh yeah yeah we'll be talking about that book again don't worry has gone on to the finals (laughs) Don't worry, we'll, we'll be talking about that book again. Carry on. Um, so, a uh, couple things to talk about this week. I went very, very genre th- this week. And actually, I think both things, yep, both things I'm talking about are from Dark Horse. So, a lot of Dark Ooh. Horse represent on this on this show this week. Um, so, I checked out, uh, l- this past week, um, Aliens, Fire and Stone, number one, came out. Uh, and a few weeks ago, Prometheus, Fire and Stone came out. And I didn't get a chance to read them either until this week. And so, I wanted to, to kind of talk about them in this event that... Uh, um, that Dark Horse is putting on this kind of big tie-in alien universe event that they're doing. Um, so uh, it's four books. It's it, it, it's Aliens, which we're going to talk about. I'm talking about today, which is uh, Chris Roberson uh, is writing it, mm. and uh, Patrick Reynolds is the artist, and then uh, Paul Tobin is writing Prometheus, um, and uh, I think is Juan Ferreira is the artist. Uh, yeah. And he actually, they were the team that did colder together. And then there's also coming out, I believe in not this week, but next week, AVP alien versus predators coming out. Christopher, Christopher Sabella is, is writing that one. And then the predator book is coming out and that's written by Joshua Williamson. So th- nice. there's really sort of like top flight talent. They're yeah. putting on all these books. Um, and they all sort of share, uh, a, the same universe and they're, and they're all playing off each other in some way or another. Um, and talking about the series as kind of a whole so far, just reading those first two issues, I think that is an interesting take. And I will say Ariel Olivetti is the artist on alien versus predator with Christopher Savelle. And the art is unbelievably gorgeous. And I've got a chance to look at it early at AVP and, it, and it's gorgeous. Um, but the, the, I think that the, the, the tie in nature of, of the series is interesting, but it's also, I think probably, as of right now, only two books in, I, I think could end up being a little bit of a weight around its neck only because um, they're very disparate franchises and they're all taking place in kind of either in, in different sort of time frames that like, like this one says like, you know, when we start, when you start aliens, it says this, this takes place before the events of, 
uh, Prometheus Fire and Stone number one. And then when you're reading um, AVP at the beginning, it says, you know, this takes place before the events of, you know, Prometheus Fire and Stone number four, but but after the events of Alien. So you you get a little bit, it gets a little bit daunting uh, with that stuff. Um, And I don't know, and I don't know yet what they're going for in the the, the totality of the thing. If it's just all loose kind of togetherness and and they're all telling kind of like a a larger kind of... um, uh, time spanning story where it's not like characters are going to meet each other and deal with each other, but it's more just there's similar themes and stuff that are going on. Then I think it'll be fine. And they could pull it off anyway, if it's very connected, but right now it's uh, for just a couple of issues in just kind of getting myself acclimated to it. It was a little overwhelming to try to place in my mind where everything was going. That being said on a single issue basis, um, Prometheus, which is written by, uh, Paul Tobin, uh, it doesn't follow the 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 events or the characters of um the the first of the movie. It it deals with characters going to that same moon, and, oh. and dealing with kind of aftermath of that. So um, there is a it's it's a crew going out there to investigate something. One of the the head of the crew has a secret that they have a secret agenda going there because it's an aliens yeah. thing. So that's what always happens. And there's somebody filming it actually, kind of like a documentary filming the the life of kind of a space trucker is the deal. Uh, there are a lot of characters in, in the first issue, and again, I think that there are, I think there are too many characters in this first issue because it's tough to get a connection to any one of them. Right. It, it's not written poorly; it's written well, but it's tough. You know. I always find this when you're introducing that many characters at one time, and we've talked about this before, right? In a movie or a TV show, there's an actor voicing and giving a personality to those characters, mm-hmm. so it is easier to tell a lot of characters apart. In a comic book, it's your own voice in your head reading all these yeah. things. Characters can look similar; they're only on screen, they're only on, in one panel before, and then and then they, and they throw a name out, but it's tough to keep track of all those names yep. and stick. And this Prometheus definitely suffers from from that in 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 a, in a bulk of its. Of its narrative. Now, uh, what's happening in the narrative is, is very classic aliens type of story, uh, but it is cool and interesting. And I think I, I'm I think one of the few people who enjoy the the, the Prometheus film. So well, we saw it together. Yeah, I, I remember. Yeah. I know to to dig into yeah. that world. I think is cool and to see not what happened to those characters, but what happened to this planet after they had left. I I, I think it, it is quite interesting. Um, and I. I have reservations about this particular miniseries because they're all four issue miniseries, but uh, the art is gorgeous and the subject matter is intriguing enough to me. And I'm not kind of like a mark for the alien universe of mm-hmm. stuff that I'm going to keep going with it. Uh, I think aliens uh, w- w- by Chris Roberson uh, works uh, on just about every level and, and is, I think a great series on its own. It takes place um, on the, basically on the planet uh, to, you know, that, that aliens yeah. takes place on uh, LV four twenty six. I think I believe is right. the number. Um, and we're dealing, it, it's tough to know. Cause I, I think it's definitely dealing in the aftermath of the movie. Um, so it, it is a much more simplified brought down story, which is there's a group of people trying to escape off of the planet and they're being chased by aliens. And Prometheus is, has a lot of dialogue and a lot of technical jargon and a lot of, it's a slow build to get you into the story. Aliens starts you off right off the bat. You're off and running. Aliens chasing people. You just, you get it, right? You just get it. Uh, the crew, a group of people do escape and they end up on the Prometheus planet. 
And this oh. is where the timing kind of gets a little bit wonky because you, you have to keep it straight in your head. Um, but they aren't alone when they're on that planet. That story was great. I loved um, Aliens. I, I, I think that Dark Horse has done a very interesting thing here by bringing in really, I mean, top flight talent across the board. Uh, and it seems to have people interested in, in what these books are doing. Um, I think if this can pull off a, a, a really awesome alien universe story, I think it'll be one of those things that, um, I don't know if people are going to keep, are going to read it in, in single issue, but I feel like it's one thing that's going to be a crossover thing, reading it in trades later on. If you love alien, you got to check this out really good. Um, I, I, I really liked aliens. I, I have, Problems with Prometheus, but I, I still find it interesting. And uh, AVP actually seems r- really good as, as well, which I wouldn't expect, right? So um, I, I think that they've got something kind of interesting uh, going around there. Uh, Bob, as I know, I know you're a fan of the fan movies. Of the movie, sure. Yeah. Now this strikes me as you say, if they pull this off, if it eventually interconnects in such a mm. way that creates its own little aliens, predator, Prometheus universe. Mm. Is this a game changer for sort of licensed material? That you can then take these sort of liberties with high-level creators and find something really above and beyond what they had as separate properties. Yeah, I think that I think that because I I've, um just to give you kind of a, a tangential or a, in a, a story about this, uh, you know Rob who runs the comics that we're talking mm-hmm. about all the time, he was taken clearly by surprise by the people being interested. In. He didn't even order them because he figured they're just kind of the licensed yeah. stuff that nobody's going to want to buy. And then a bunch of people were asking about them when, when when the week came, and then he realized they were written by these people and all this stuff. So I, I think that it has made people stand up and take interest, and I think the level of talent they brought on for this type of property, um, while it's probably not you know without example somewhere else, is definitely something that I think is is different for what we're, what's going on you know right now. Um, Steve, you haven't a chance to read these yet, right? I have actually been exercising my ability to uh, not add series to my pile. <laughs> and as much as big of an Aliens fan as I am, I'm actually, um, my next uh, Ink and Pixel article on Joe Blow will be focusing on the original Alien film um, to coincide with the release of Alien Isolation. Uh, I am dying to read them, but seeing that there, it's like one of four, one of four, one of, I kind of want to wait until they're all together. Because like you said, with the the jumping around in timetables and in location and stuff like that, I feel that I would be at a disadvantage knowing the way that I read and the way I'm able to absorb stories by jumping around that much. I kind of want to wait until it's all collected together and then just like make a weekend of it. There you go. So, but then again, Bobby talking about it, I am going to the shop tomorrow and they (laughs) are there, so... (laughs) <laughs> yeah, never know. Well, you can always read our review copies that we have on the, on the Dropbox, which is how I review how I read them. Well then, <laughs> wow. perhaps I will do that, and then uh, I'll still purchase them when they're all said and done. Well, yes, I, yeah. I I very much want to purchase them, but because Rob didn't get them, I had I didn't I didn't have them. So right, uh, but really, really good. I, I think that if you're a big Aliens fan, I, I think they're definitely something that is worth at least checking out the first issue of. Um, yeah, so that's uh, Aliens, Fire and Stone, and Prometheus, Fire and Stone uh, from Dark Horse. The other book I want to talk about, uh, I think it was it wasn't this past year, it was the year before that, on our, our at least our kind of end of the year list uh, for nominations. It was a book called Alabaster Wolves, 
which was written by uh, Caitlin Kiernan with art by Steve Lieber. And uh, I, ju- I picked up a, a few months ago uh, the second collection, which is Alabaster Grimmer Tales. Um, same creative team. This was a Dark Horse Presents uh, kind of serialized story that's now collected in a really nice hardcover um, from Dark Horse. Now, it takes place after the events of Alabaster Wolves. And much like Alabaster Wolves, I th- drew on what Kieran had done in the past in novel form. This definitely draws heavily on th- those past stories. So uh, she- she's not, she doesn't really giving any quarter to anyone who doesn't understand. Mm-hmm. Like you can definitely enjoy the stories for kind of their base sort of Gothic Southern horror aspect um, on their own. But there are a lot of references to things that have happened in the past. And there are a lot of things going on that you won't get as much shape to if you haven't read the, the past uh, tales of a uh, dancy flammarian. Um, so this, this is book is framed. Uh, our, our, our talking bird uh, familiar uh, who was a big mm-hmm. part, obviously uh, of uh, alabaster wolves um, is in a box car with really kind of nightmare fuel creatures like these like giant rats and like, Sort of like almost like a mini Cthulhu monster guy. He's like he's like a guy wearing a hat, but he has like a, like a squid face. Oh, um, it's very weird. And basically, they're 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 saying like you know, tell us a story or we're gonna eat you. Is kind of the the gist of it. No pressure like a, there. Yeah, like a pig monster thing. Um, and the art by Steve Lieber is great. It's it's both uh, you know gorgeous and terrifying, and very detailed. And he's very good at bringing these gothic moments to life. Uh, and this is, it has, I believe it's three stories um, about Dancy. And the first one, she's in a southern town that has been overrun by this kind of evil mermaid. Um, the the other one is, it's very interesting. It's called Blackbird. And it's, it, it's set in space, um, in kind of a future where in, in, a, in a ship that has an AI that has gone dormant and a little bit crazy and Dancy is trying to save uh, the, the the ship and the and the AI very interesting change of pace nothing I expected at all but definitely still ties ties into the the present day story that's going on as well um, and then a third story that uh, could be the the final story of Dancy Flammarion called White as Snow um, what what Kiernan has done here and, and I haven't read the the prose stuff I only read the graphic uh, versions of her stories but. She's created a, a, a really quirky, interesting, uh, real set of characters here, whether it be Dancy or Maisie, who is this ghost of a werewolf or the bird or any of these things, brought these characters to life in a really real way where you, you really care about them and you have a deep interest in, in what they're doing and uh, th- their their livelihood. The, the, the writing is incredibly original and... Um, you know, oftentimes confusing because it, it, it is, it, you know, I, I think she shares a lot in common with uh, Neil Gaiman at times as well, where she's pulling on very big ideas and mythology and such that I, I think that is probably first and foremost in her head, but, you know, or she knows it off the top of her head, but it's not something, you know, that we know kind of in our normal mm. myth- mythological lexicon. Uh, but because of that, it, it seems so foreign and, and strange and original that it's very easy to get lost in it and really, really fall for it. Um, you know, it, it's unlike Alabaster Rules where it's not one cohesive story. It is 
is several stories, three stories that are disparate and take place in kind of different times, like I said. So if you're looking for that kind of full narrative, it's not that. But if you're just looking for more stories about this character, it is that. And I think it is really, really well worth it. It's a gorgeous hardcover um, put out by Dark Horse. And it, I believe it's only it's only $20. Um, and it's well, well worth that. If you liked Alabaster Wolves at all, uh, Alabaster Grimmer Tales is definitely worth it. Absolutely. Sweet. Yeah. Um, Steve, you'll love it. I, I know that you loved Wolves. Yeah, I've been wanting to get my hands on that book for a while. It's one of those things that every time I'm at the shop and I'm like, what do I get? What do I get? Mm-hmm. And then I leave with something else that I get home and I'm like, ah, damn it. <laughs> yeah, it's great. I, I want to go back and read Alabaster Wolves now again because I just it's really, really great stuff. Nice. Um, so, yeah. Uh, that'll do it uh, for uh, the books of the week. We're going to jump right in to some questions from from listeners that we didn't get to last week before oh, we snap. get <laughs> before we get to our, our our interview with the wonderful Marguerite Bennett. Getting right. Um delightful. so let's d- she is delightful. <laughs> oh yeah, in the future. In the future <laughs> right. she, she will be delightful. I'm uh, betting she's delightful. <laughs> so we had a question and this is from uh, Saul Karnofsky on, uh, on the forums. It said what are the top 3 re- reasons why you love comics? Um Bob, I want to I want to go to you first. Okay. First, I would say simply it's just modern mythology. Uh, you're talking about with Caitlin Keener here. We have little bits of mythology from the old days that we still carry around. We still know who Thor is and the Greek and Roman gods. But this is, in the best sense of it, heroes and, and heroines and bigger ideas of what that means. So that, that to me is very big. As with To me also, as with the best science fiction, you can now take in those bigger themes under the pretense of telling a story about somewhere, some when, somebody else, but address racism and war and violence and society crumbling and the relationships of men and women, all that kind of stuff. So that that's really big for me. The third thing is I grew up in a much different movie world than all you guys did. The only way to see superheroes unfettered <laughs> were comic books. As much a fan as I am of George Reeves and the television Superman, which is my introduction to these sort of things, it's pretty limited to what you could do with the technology of mm-hmm. 65 years ago. So in the same period that I was watching him sort of break through a brick wall and try not to get hit in the head with something on the way through or jump off a springboard, Galactus was trying to eat the Earth <laughs> in a Jack Kirby photo montage. So that's, that's my third reason. Those are my three. That's great. It's great. Stephanie, what about you? Um, okay. I love books because you can build the world of words in your mind. But when you read comics, you're getting to see the world from the viewpoint of the creators as they envisioned it when they were putting it together. So like, it's like you're getting to see into exactly what they were going through and thinking when, you know, they wanted this to be in somebody's hands. Um, and I think that's a really unique experience. Films and adaptations can be hit and miss, but comics, writers and artists work hand in hand to bring you, um, you know, exactly what they want you to see. And it could be good or bad, but it's still their vision. It's singular, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, two, nothing is impossible in comics. Um you know, it's like reach for the sky. And then once you hit the sky, go out into space and 
go reach for the stars and out to the galaxy and cosmos. Like, it just never ends. You can do anything in comics. Nothing ridiculous. Like, seriously, nothing. Gold uh, girl. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, everything is possible. And you can just... The possibilities are endless with them. And I just think that's phenomenal. There's so few mediums that allow you to put anything on paper and have somebody take it so utterly and completely seriously. Um, You know, um, and then the third thing is they're just fun to read. It's, you know, when you get a good comic, there's nothing quite like it. It's just, again, I keep saying that it's a completely different medium from anything else. And that's what I love about it. Cool. Awesome. Uh, for me, it's, uh, I, I share your sentiment, same thing. I actually, the first thing on my list, Stephanie, about anything being possible. Um, I, I talked about this when I, I remember when I was in Doctor Who cast, I said, that's the reason I love Doctor Who, right? Is that it, epi- the episodes aren't governed by really any rules, mm-hmm. right? They can be science fiction stories. They can be fantasy stories. They can be horror stories. And I feel the same way about comics, right? That they're, they're a medium that is so flexible and, and, and so able to be, so many things and even within stories that are you know superhero stories you can get horror stories mm-hmm. or you can they can become science fiction stories and of i mean not to even mention the, the 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 amount of indie stuff that you can get that can fill those gaps of literature that you don't really get anymore in a lot of other places so i think that's pretty wonderful that the medium is so flexible it can be so many things um i i, I love that they are weekly pieces of living art you know that they that every single week you get something wholly original done by an extremely talented, you know, painter, penciler, you know, wh- whatever whatever their method may be. Um, I, I think that's pretty astounding, right? And it and it's where else does that happen? Where else do artists have that steady of work to do those sort of out of the box things? You know, it, it's 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 a it's a it's an outlier in in just about any medium um that people get to see publicly anyway i know there's plenty of like concept art and stuff like that but you don't always get to see that stuff and other thing too is and i mean it's not just because we do this show because obviously we have a ton of access to people who do this stuff because of the show that we do but we wouldn't have that access if the people who wrote this stuff and drew these books weren't so accessible in the first place and I think being able to have that sort of contact with the people who create the stuff and be able to, like we get to talk to Mar- Margaret Bennett later in the show and, and she goes into specifics about how she creates things and, and the ideas behind that stuff. And, you know, these, a lot of people are very active on Twitter or Tumblr. You can reach out to them and you can talk to them, even if you don't record a podcast or do a website or whatever, mm-hmm. and they're willing to tell you these things. And there's not a really any other medium that's this big and this mainstream that you're able to, you, you, you can't really write to, you know, J.J. Abrams, they go, hey, yeah. J.J., like, why did you do this thing? You know, you don't get to do that. Yeah. What were you thinking when you took yeah. this shot? Yeah. But you can write something to Jeff Johns or Brian Michael Bendis or whoever on Twitter, and they answer you, say, this is why I did it, you know, oh, or whatever. And I think that's pretty special that the, the people who do this stuff are, are so um, engaged and, and, for the most part, humble about what they do that they're willing to engage on that level with, with, with their fans. And I, I think that's... It's more of a meta thing about the about the mm-hmm. world, but it's one of the things I love the most about it. Uh-huh. Um, Steve, what are your three? Well, 
Um, one of my favorite things about comics is that they're products of passion that you could have somebody who's a writer. Um, we, we speak with Marguerite Bennett and what I am to assume is an amazing interview later <laughs> in the show. Um, the fact that they've, they've had dreams or they've like fanboy or girled about these characters for, you know, a portion of their lives. And then all of a sudden they have worked their way and put themselves in the right position to write them that they finally then get the chance to tell the story with a character that they love, that they're passionate about, that they get their chance to put it out there for the world to see. I love that comics give them the platform to do that. Um, I think it's pretty incredible. Um, another aspect of comics that I absolutely love is the sense of escape that can often come from reading the stories. Um, and not like escape from my life or anything like that, but the idea of being immersed in worlds and how we've talked about, you know, how do you read your comics and how I tend to, like, if I have a stack of DC comics, how I, I wait until I'm in that DC mood or mode and I go to read them and I can stay within that world and right from my couch or right from my toilet or right from my bedroom or wherever the hell I might be when I'm reading that I can be transported into Gotham. I could go into outer space with Alana and Marco and Saga and just all the ways in which comics transport the reader into these different lives and different, you know, heroic situations or situations or horrifying situations. And you're still safe in the comfort of your own reading space. Um, so I think that that's pretty incredible. And, um, the idea that comics offer up the chance to create heroes for people that otherwise might not have any. Um, people live, you know, some people live really hard lives and they don't have access to people that inspire them or that, you know, they haven't grown up around somebody who they idolize and want to be like and they've had it rough. Some people have found comics and have found heroes or just regular characters in indie books that are like them or people they would like to be and have taken little pieces of those characters and invited them into their own lives and live better lives because of the stories told in comics are inspired by comic book characters and stories to be better people. And I think that that's a, that's a byproduct of well-written comics and characters um, that is is just a uh, one of the most wondrous things about you know these impossible characters being very real heroes uh, for people that see something special within them, and um, I know that the same can be said about novels and films, but I think there's something just slightly more personal um, in regard to comics, and especially since you have so many iterations of the characters or of those worlds that you get to pick and choose which ones you most identify with and enjoy. So there are my three reasons. Very nice. A dozen good reasons to read comic books, <laughs> that's for sure. Mm -hmm. um, let's see here. What should we do next? Um, okay, this will be a quick one, quick round on the table. Um, what is your favorite indie publisher not named Image? Bob. Um, oh. Go ahead, Steve. I was going to say Boom and Archaea. All right. Can I? I can. I can now say that because they're together, correct? Yes, you guys. Now they're <laughs> yeah. one. They're one company now. Wow. Yeah, they're just pumping out book after book. It's Empty Man and Amazing mm -hmm. Gumball, such good stuff. 
Uh, for me, it'd be IDW, uh, the Burn stuff, all the all the various Star Trek things, and their great reprints of old newspaper strips. They're the Superman, the Batman, uh, the Miss Fury, the large books we have. They're about to do the Wonder Woman mm-hmm. newspaper strips from the 40s. IDW. Nice. nice. Stephanie? Um, I'd say just specifically Boom. I love Archaea stuff, but um, for me, they're still in a process of changing over to being awesome um, on the level of single issues and trades, but boom has nailed down what their, um, you know, formula is and they're working to just keep on putting out more and more awesome stuff. So um, if we're not talking image, I think we're talking boom. Boom. (laughs) (laughs) Um, For me, it's probably dark horse for me. Um, I, I, I think that, I, I like like I love the Hellboy universe quite a bit, and I think that that stuff is so consistently excellent uh, that it's hard not to take notice of it. And um, obviously, I spoke of some of the other books. I think they do horror books really, really well. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, I just I, you know I, I don't get into like their superhero side of things, but I think other than that, I think when I see a Dark Horse book, I'm at least willing to like take a look at it and and see um, what's going on. But I mean, they're all great, great publishers. Um, all right, so uh, okay, so it's funny because Nathan and um, Riddle Riddle Me Chris both had mm-hmm. sort of similar questions, right? Uh, Riddle Me Chris wrote, Gail Simone posted a fun question to Tumblr today, and I thought you guys might enjoy answering it. If you could go on one perfect date with a DC character, whom would you pick? And the same question with a Marvel character. Not based on their powers, just who you find most attractive or appealing. Bob, I know you have it written down, so I'm going to go to you first. Sure. Uh, I'm going to say Zatanna. Okay. Oh. Just tons of adventures. You'd have to hear about other dimensions, showbiz on everything else. Her father was a superhero. Mm-hmm. A lot of cool stuff. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Stephanie, what about you for the DC um, side? For DC, I would say that if Buddy Baker and his wife get a divorce, <laughs> <laughs> I'm really fond of Buddy Baker. He's an actor he is a family man he's a superhero what more can you want (laughs) i like that that's good that's good um steve what about you um for dc i've got to go harley quinn i have had many many a daydream (laughs) of uh parading around coney island and brooklyn with her and a pack of hyenas (laughs) i think it would be hysterical (laughs) that's good i like that I like that. How about for you? Though I, I would fear for your life in some instances. <laughs> oh, but that's half the fun. <laughs> She's going to kill me. Yeah. Um, you know, it's tough for me. I, I say Supergirl. I'm, I'm a wow. fan of Supergirl in the DC in the DC side of things. Mm-hmm. Um, I just think she seems like a, a fun a fun person. She seems like she's dealing with a lot, but she's got she she wants to be out there and having a good time. And I think that that'd be a fun person to go on a yeah. date with. Uh, Bob, what what about Marvel? Carol Danvers. Easy. Right. Stephanie, Marvel. Oh, I don't know. I've been trying to think of this. Um, Daredevil. I don't have nice. a reason. He's a lawyer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he can fight our bills. And they never have to shave my legs because he doesn't see. Yeah, but he can feel. feel. <laughs> Whatever. It's a lot worse to touch than it is he to He can see. hear the hair on your legs growing. <laughs> yeah, it would just be soft. It would can just use be his soft. radar vision to see it. <laughs> no. It's like you haven't shaved your legs in a while. <laughs> <laughs> Shut up, everyone. Um, <laughs> Steve, what about you? 
Uh, I would pick uh, She-Hulk, actually. <laughs> I, uh, ever since, this is confession time, ever since uh, Matt Fraction's FF, I have developed a bit of a thing for her, uh, and I'm going to leave it at that. <laughs> All right. <laughs> um... Shield was pretty high on my list as well, Steve. So it's it's not such a there's, such, there's such a something weird there's something about her in either form, raging out or not. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Um, uh, it's her confidence. She has a lot of yeah. confidence. Yeah, it's true. It's, it's very very true. Uh, I would say um, Medusa. Ah, awesome. a queen, no less. A queen. I like it. I'm trading up, Bob. Yeah, <laughs> I'm very confident in myself. <laughs> But I, I feel like it would be some interesting conversations. Yeah. Very different frames of reference of life. <laughs> it's also you wine with her hair. Exactly. Yeah. And it's more conversation than you have with Black Bolt. It's true. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. He, he can, if he wants to come in and just sit there and drink wine and like, get, you know. And she never flower. has to shave her legs. Cause like, she can just like drape her hair everywhere and then it'll be like, hey, did you shave? No, that's just my hair. That's just, yeah. that's just my hair. Just no, she can control the hair in her legs, right? Didn't it, was oh. it a fraction that used the, her, her eyelashes to capture microscopic villains or yeah. something? So, yeah. I like it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and the, the question from Nathan that was very similar was if you had the opportunity to have a drink with any comic book character and the, crea- and, and a, and the creator you would most like to write them, who would they be? Um, he, he says, I chose Dr. Doom and Scott Snyder. And I'd order a hot toddy. <laughs> it's, start, it's starting to get cold here in Newfoundland. Ah, Newfoundland. Mm. So watch out. Keep your, your Newfoundland racial slurs to a minimum, Stephanie. Selfies. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> so, Bob, what do you got for well, us? Well, first of all, let me just say, my dad was in the service in Newfoundland. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, it snows every month of the year, but August. So, yeah, <laughs> it is starting to get cold up there. Uh, simple answer, I would tell you, you know... Uh, Stanley or Jack Kirby and Ben Grimm sitting mm-hmm. uh, sitting in a bar room somewhere, <laughs> but I'll Dave Stevens and Cliff Secord, the Rocketeer, in a retro bar like a speakeasy somewhere. That's a good just, one. Uh, nice jukebox playing some '40s dance tunes and just hang out. That's a really good one. That's a really really good one. I like that one. Steve, you got one? Yeah, um, I would love to sit down for a drink with Reed Richards. I think it would be absolutely amazing to just talk to him about the world and the universe and all the different times and places uh, that he's gotten to visit. And if I could choose a writer, I would sit down with Charles Soule and the two of us would uh, attempt to get Reed to cut loose, maybe at a show uh, in Brooklyn at the Bell House or some such. <laughs> and uh, but hopefully the one the one thing with that he wouldn't be able to do that stupid dance from the second movie <laughs> that would not not happen. Uh, and I would order an old-fashioned, as I always do. Nice. Nice. Mm-hmm. Stephanie, what about you? Um, I'm going to say Patsy Walker. Oh, that was nice. almost fine. <laughs> um, and creator I would like to go drinking with. Um, I don't know. Well, so the creator you'd want to write Patsy Walker. Oh, okay. Um, oh, I don't know. What creator <laughs> haven't you had drinks with? yeah that's an awesome thing that you don't have an answer for that question yeah. <laughs> yeah um yeah i don't know i for drink itself i would order a dark and stormy 
Nice. Ooh. Um, which is delicious. Those are great. It's like my favorite drink. But you have to have it with like spiced Kraken rum. The, the Kraken. That's a good one, yeah. Yeah. It's, it makes it even better. Mm-hmm. That's but a good drink. I love that drink. the alcohol. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. All right, I, cool. I don't know. Yeah. Cool, yeah. Um, I think I would, uh, I would with, with Peter Parker. I would bring a Peter mm-hmm. Parker, and I would bring uh, Matt Fraction along for that one would you get your nipples pierced i think that'd be a good time (laughs) (laughs) and i think uh no no nipple piercings um but uh, i think we would drink um dirty martinis i'm gonna actually like allow you to also bring chip zadarsky on this one that would be fun because i just feel like they now go hand in hand yeah that would be a weird a weird night out (laughs) slash awesome slash awesome definitely definitely um we'll probably not end for a very long time no absolutely not <laughs> <laughs> um let's see here what else can we talk about i'm trying to think of the ones i said i'd definitely talk about but um uh let's okay let's ask this one because this one's a little bit more um light. it says i've often this is from jedi qe says i've i've often wondered what makes events so popular the first one i ever read was the original secret wars mm. while it seems quite campy compared to today's events i found it a lot of fun bear in mind that i read it when it originally came out part of the reason i enjoyed it so much is that it was self-contained i've grown tired of having to buy a half a dozen books that i wouldn't normally ju- just to follow the story forever e- this is actually stephanie running under a pseudonym yeah. uh, forever <laughs> evil <laughs> Forever Evil, Forever Evil did a fairly good job of keeping this to a minimum, but I've sworn off any more events. What events are your favorite, and what do you think could be done to make them more enjoyable? Um, hmm. You know, it's, it's interesting for me because I feel like event stuff, uh, for me personally, I feel like it's better read after the fact than when it's actually coming out and happening. Right. This is my experience just in the three years we've been doing this and the events we've kind of gone through as we're going through them. You know, when I look back at events that I read separately, you know, when I reading Blackest Night or, you know, reading um, Infinite Crisis or anything like that, I, I, I mean, I love Blackest Night and I like Infinite Crisis, but I always like those are really good. Um, but then I wonder, like, when they're coming out, would I, would I have the same opinion of those that I have of the ones that come out now that I'm like, oh, it's just a little disappointing. It goes on too long. You know, I wonder if I'd have that same opinion, you know, because, because of the fact that just the way the deluge of titles that are, that are kind of thrust at you sure. while it's happening, right? And I think he's right. I think, I think Forever Evil did it a lot better than those other books did. The, the, those tie-ins were simply just kind of side stories or and you didn't need to read them to understand kind of the fuller picture, but often gave you uh, great stories, right? Like the the um, the Stargirl stuff and the Forever Evil Justice League of America tie-ins was great. It was really, really great. And that event actually served to, I think, make those books better, um, the Justice League books better. That doesn't usually not how it happens. Usually no. it's interruption. So, I mean, for me, the favorite thing I've ever read that's been an event, and I, I mean, it wasn't, I wasn't reading what was going on, was probably Blackest Night. That was probably the thing that affected me the most that I felt like had the most real changes and stakes going on in it um, and was the most bombastic, which I feel like some of the events, they need to be because that's what they're supposed to be, right? It's supposed to be the big, huge summer popcorn of the summer popcorn that yeah. we already get every single week from from mainstream comic books, but for me, it's probably um, Blackest Night for my favorite. Hmm. Uh, interesting. You mentioned Secret Wars. By the time they did Secret Wars two, they turned it into a modern event with mm-hmm. tie-ins and in, have the Beyonder come and interrupt other books just to show his face. Hmm. It was just really ludicrous. 
uh, of events that are really event events and the kind we generally talk about because otherwise I'm going to say DC versus Marvel, which I just absolutely loved, which mm. doesn't really count because it was so self-contained it didn't go anywhere else, even though it went in an amalgam universe. It's the first Crisis on Infinite Earths, which I loved. It ended and I hated it because then the <laughs> changes were permanent mm-hmm. and then loved it again. Mm-hmm. Having gone back and reread it recently, it, it's still a little screwy and the crossovers got a little lame. Yeah. Three panels of red sky and this is a crossover. Yeah. The stakes for the characters, forgetting what would happen about a rebooted universe within the story itself, seeing Barry and mm. Kara and all the things that happened, universes of heroes I loved growing up reading those JLA, JSA crossovers vanish in a second, carried real, real power. Mm-hmm. So I'm go with that first crisis. Nice. Stephanie? I hate events. <laughs> I hate them so much. <laughs> um, that being said... I mean, there's been, like, the Forever Evil stuff, like, the actual uh, stuff that I read with, like, Stargirl, that wasn't really, mm-hmm. I guess, all Forever Evil stuff, though, but I really enjoyed that. Um, I mean, I'm sure there's events that I've enjoyed. I'm just curmudgeonly and miserable about them at this point in time, because they derail everything that I love. Mm-hmm. Um, so, <laughs> I, I've got nothing more to say on this. All right. Steve, what, what about you? Um, my favorite event that I've read uh, thus far is also Blackest Night. Mm. I, For all the reasons that you said, Bobby, that event is just super, super exciting and engaging. And it so many twists and turns. And you felt like there were real consequences to that event. And just the situation was so dire. There were so many like high, high water moments uh, in that that you were waiting I don't want to say the words, but you were waiting to hear certain words a couple of times throughout the series. And each time that they that they showed up, it was like another jolt of uh, of, of like electricity throughout uh, my body. And I just I loved it um, in regard to what events may. Are we going uh, to answer what they could do to perhaps present them better? I mean, I mean, I think we've answered that question a few times. You know, okay. we, we, I think we did a whole show about that question. <laughs> okay. um, uh, and I think our I think our opinions are pretty much known about mm-hmm. what, what we can do to do better. We talk about it kind of every week. So we'll leave yeah. that kind of more negative part of the question out. Um, of yeah, I mean, all it's funny. All of my thinking back on it, all of my favorite events have been DC events between mm-hmm. Blackest Night and uh, Forever Evil uh, in recent memory. Those are those are two of my favorite events. Yeah, absolutely. I think I, I think... To me, my, for my purpose, I I often enjoy the day to day Marvel stuff more, but I think DC does events in in a more satisfying mm-hmm. way. Um, I, I think that they're usually better about it. Um, and last question I want to ask, uh, and this is from Joe Kerr says, uh, in your opinions, what are the most underrated storylines you've come across? Uh, but- uh, the first thing I think of, and I, it's probably on Bob's list as well, um, is Matt Fraction's Defenders. Uh, mm-hmm. Definitely, I think that it was nobody read it, and it's a freaking excellent story, yeah. um, funny and engaging and and intelligent, and all of those things that you come to expect from Matt Fraction, um, and gone kind of in a blink of an eye, but and bizarre as well. Yeah. Uh, really great stuff. Yeah, it yeah. came back around on itself two or three different times. Mm-hmm. Great characterizations of some B level and C level characters. Mm-hmm. The Red She-Hulk, which I was introduced to and just fell in love with her. Right. Yeah, yeah that's a goodie. Yeah. What else do we got? What do you got, Bob? I say this a lot to people because it always comes up. 
Squadron Supreme, mm-hmm. Mark Grunewald's original 12-issue 1985 maxi-series. Always say this, before there was Watchmen, there was the Squadron Supreme. Covers a lot of the same grounds, but just it, it's not by one of those guys. Mm-hmm. So it's flown under the radar. It's been reprinted a few times. It may even be out of print at this point, but check it out, folks. It's a goodie. Cool. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Steve, you got one? I do. Uh, it's, in, in, in again, in recent times, a very, very underrated uh, series that sadly is going away is the Superior Foes of Spider-Man. I, oh man, it's so good. It's so good. For anybody that stayed on this book, you know it's so hapless and so funny and so just quirky. It's doing its own thing. It's not within any continuity of any other book. It's its own little corner of the Marvel Universe. And it just takes all of these misfits and all of these like D and C list characters and sticks them in a blender and turns it up on high and, and just watch it go. They have, um, there was one part in the series, one issue where they had a whole issue dedicated to kind of villains anonymous of all of like the weird, uh, villains that have showed up throughout the Spider-Man and Marvel universe, all going to like sympathize with one another. They had uh, villains like the bear and all these other weird uh, characters show up. And it's just every single issue is a riot. Um, I, I can't recommend it enough. I, I don't hear too many people talk about it. And it's such a shame that it's going away. All right. Stephanie. Does fearless defenders count? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It counts. I really enjoyed that series. Uh, Steve and I second that one. <laughs> yep. Bobby, you read? Yeah, I read it all. Okay, yeah, yeah. Okay, I mean, I, okay. I, that, that's the reason why I now follow Cullen Bunn. Ah. You know, I, 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 I absolutely agree. I think that was, it was a really standout series and a very surprising one as well. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. All right, so that's going to do it for our form questions. We still have more. Keep them coming, guys. We're going to keep mm-hmm. answering them over the, over the next few weeks. Um, we're going to take a little break, though, and we're going to come back with Marguerite Bennett. Be sure to be delightful, Marguerite. are back and we are joined by really seems like the writer of everything right now marguerite <laughs> bennett marguerite thank you so much for joining us on talking Thanks comics so i really appreciate y'all having me of course of course um so you are you're busy right now you're very busy um, <laughs> <Love> <laughs> yeah, i guess if charles souls isn't writing it yeah marguerite is charles oh. <laughs> <laughs> lovely <laughs> uh so you are, I, I always find it fascinating because you are um, obviously relatively new to the kind of, uh, I guess, the professional side uh, uh, of the business. I don't know how long you've been writing, you know, before this, obviously, but uh, what is your background? How did you get into it? And what was it, what was it like to, to, to break into this, this world? <laughs> it, I mean, it was, it was fantastic, but I came in in a rather unorthodox way. Um, I mean, I'd always known since I was a little kid that I wanted to be a writer and um, all through college I wrote, I mean, I had, you know, rules of 1,500 words a day, rain or shine, 
And then after I graduated um, from the University of Mary Washington in Fredericksburg, I wrote a novel. And I knew that this was something that I really, you know, I wanted to continue this study. I wanted to find, you know, amazing professors who were able to teach me more and, you know, really train my skills. I wanted to work with the best. And so um, I went looking for an MFA uh, with, you know, with a, a professorship. Um, you know, that I really felt, uh, understood what, you know, what I wanted out of my work. And I, I mean, I'm a genre writer, and so I wasn't looking to write the next great American novel. <laughs> um, so Sarah Lawrence, um, Sarah Lawrence College in Bronxville, New York, wound up being the perfect fit. And while I was there, I met uh, Scott Snyder, who taught a comics and graphic novel writing class. And I, I mean, I just fell in love with the course, and I brought him this project that I'd worked on and off with, um, for several years, and he really responded to it. And after the class, uh, we kept in touch for about a year, and then he finally reached out to me. He said, you know, I keep thinking about the story that you wrote. I think that you're ready to do this professionally. Um, would you be interested in helping me out with the Batman annual? <laughs> I'm going to throw him under the bus and tell you that he actually said it like that. He was like, oh, you know, will you help me out with this? Like, will you get my kid from soccer? Will you take me to the airport? Will you write an issue of Batman with me? <laughs> it's like, those, that's, that's one of the things you're not allowed to say to another human being. <laughs> um, so uh, he wound up introducing me to Mike Martz, who was the then head of the Batman group at DC Comics. And I went through the full audition process and, you know, I sent them um, spec scripts, this five arc story that I had from, from one of their heroes. I, uh, they, they gave me inventory issues to write, you know, like, what can you do with this character? And it was, um, you know, essentially to show how I could take criticism, how I could think on my feet, you know, the way, the range of ideas and the diversity of ideas that I had, how I worked with an artistic team, um, you know, essentially to prove that I, I was at the professional level uh, in order to write for them. And they wound up really enjoying the stories that I turned in, and um, so they picked me up, <laughs> and uh, so here I am. That's fascinating. We, we've had a lot of people on. I don't think I've ever heard anyone talk about that part of the process, mm -hmm. kind of like that auditioning yeah. Yeah. process for it um you went over it a little bit i'm interested to know like what like can you talk about like what characters you were you were you were kind of asked to write about and in that process do you do you kind of think about holding back ideas you're like i don't want to keep put this in the in the, the pitch thing because <laughs> yeah. i want to save it for myself or something else that i do <laughs> you know that was the thought but one of the things that i've really learned or i mean this it's true for me it might not be true for all writers but the things that i wind up saving are usually the things that i wind up squandering um, that, you know, I, I'd say, you know, I'll hang on to this and use it later, but then later I usually have a better idea. Um, so it's, you know, I don't, I don't mind like throwing, you know, some, like what I used to, I might've kept this idea once and been like, oh, I'm going to do like a six issue arc out of this. And now I put the whole concept just into a one shot. Mm -hmm. Um, but I feel like that keeps me on my toes and, you know, makes me stay hungry. So instead of having like a vault of things that, you know, might you know, deteriorate over time. I'd rather just, you know, do it when it's, when it's fresh, when I'm passionate about it, when it's relevant to the time and the character when I'm writing it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, mm -hmm. And, you know, I think obviously the Batman annual and then you've done a few different things, right? You, you've jumped in and you've done one issue here, one issue there of yeah. things. Uh -huh. uh, and you're also now, obviously, I want to talk a little bit later about kind of the, um, you have your, uh, your own work, obviously your creator own stuff. And then you also are going to be working with, you know, Karen Gillan and stuff or you are working with them right now, and I want to talk about that, but when you come in and you write something like the, like the Batgirl one-off or, or that, yeah. that you write, what is it like coming into kind of the middle of someone else's run? Like, how do you approach that? Do you approach it any differently than you approach starting something? 
That was actually terrifying because Gail Simone is one of my idols, and so it was exceptionally just daunting at the idea of, you know, stepping in on an event and trying to fill her shoes. And so, I mean, I went back through, you know, just issue after issue of, you know, any place that she'd written Barbara Gordon, even as Oracle, um, you know, to try and make sure, um, you know, that I matched, like, you know, that I matched tone. And, you know, even down to, I was looking at, um, her work with Fernando in uh, Fernando Passerin, who'd been working with her on Batgirl, and looking at how like the pages were structured, like you know, I wanted it to to feel complete and true to you know who Barbara Gordon is um, to current readers, and how they've gotten it is through Gail's lens, and so it was it was very important to me, um, you know, that fans you know feel like they were still in capable hands, you know, someone who loved the character uh, as Gail loved the character. Well, that zero-year issue, that was really tough because you're dealing now with really young Barbara, but you still found a way to, to have the voice of the heroine there, the, looking forward and backwards at the same time. That's a pretty special bit of work there. Thank you. No, I'm a big fan. You're Batgirl 32 with Halloween upon us. No. <laughs> that is just a really scary, scary issue with, with the Midnight Man now. Are you into horror movies and such and oh, how did that come from what's your favorite horror character if you had one? Oh, hannibal lecter <laughs> sorry okay. was that too fast <laughs> no that's perfect <laughs> i love i love hannibal and i love frankenstein and um you know just the idea of someone who has sought out evil and someone who has been created you know in in a concept of evil but you know someone someone who has deliberately sought out malice and cruelty or you know is born to it as a second nature and someone who might have been born to it but doesn't revel in it, someone who wants to tear away from it. So those are like, those are my two, my two big ones. <laughs> okay. Now, and in that issue, it's definitely referencing sort of 70s, 80s slasher movies, all oh. sort of Candyman, say the poem, <laughs> uh -huh. and the Midnight Man shows up. And... Candyman last night. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. Um, Bobby, definitely my background. Oh, so sorry, go ahead. No, 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 no. please. <laughs> no, I was just going to say that in that issue too, though, in the midst of all the, the horror stuff and, and the kids, I don't know if everyone's read this one in our audience, they should with Halloween coming. Some kids are having their own little horror movie night and they actually start saying things they shouldn't. Bad stuff happens. But in the midst of all that, there are some lovely moments of Barbara thinking about Dick Grayson because of what had been going on in the, in the Forever Evil stories mm. at that point. And that it's just the juxtaposition of the two is so touching. How did you find that angle to, to take? Um, well, I wanted to construct the entire idea around um, sort of Barbara's mental state and what she was going through. And so it was, you know, she needs this time to grieve, but she can't because of her duties and because of her upbringing. And so it's um, there's a big sense of claustrophobia throughout uh, the throughout the issue. And you know, you're you're boxed in, you're in um, trapped in these increasingly small rooms and these increasingly small spaces. And so it's as if if the house were her mind, um, oh. that this the you know the invasion of the Midnight Man is almost like this invasion of grief. You know into her psyche and that it's something that she has to outwit something that she um you know let in and in a way like she blames herself you know that this this grief is a distraction she should be focusing on you know the greater good she should be focusing on helping people um but she can't you know she loved him and you know and she lost him and having having to struggle with that depression having to struggle with that grief once it's loose in your mind um and so that was sort of like you know i was trying to tell like story on top of story with that i wanted it to be a, you know a good you know 
exciting horror story. At the same time, I did want to tra- talk about, you know, the process of grief and healing. Awesome. Very interesting. Very interesting. <laughs> I, I, I also, I, I want to ask about the, uh, the Lois Lane one shot uh-huh. as well. Um, you know, how did that come to you? And what was your, you know, she's not a character that has at least recently been the star uh, uh, of her own story. So, uh, how did you come to that assignment, and how did you go about attacking that assignment? <laughs> um, that one actually uh, that came right after I think Lobo launched um, and did well financially. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> Lobo's Lobo's a story in and of himself. Um, but yeah, after after uh, that took off, um, the head Superman editor gave me a ring and just and you know happened to mention that there was maybe a Lois Lane project. And I, like, completely steamrolled him on the phone. I was like, yes, whatever it is, I am there. I love her so much. Please let me be a part of this. Um, and so for a while, I actually thought that it was it was a, a multi-writer thing. And then I found out that I was the only writer who was going to be doing Lois Lane. And that was just, I mean, I was over the moon, but I was also completely yeah. overwhelmed. Yeah, um, no pressure there, right? <laughs> this character with a 75-year heritage and who means so many different things to so many different people. Um, that was, that was the one that I honestly felt the most nervous about writing, even more than Batman. Um, I mean, Batman's character has been, you know, more or less consistent in his 75 years, whereas Lois, you know, went, you know, the the hard-boiled reporter, and then, you know, it was, it was the, the, you know, way crazy, you know, competition with Lana, um, and, you know, then the Bridezilla characters, and then into a war reporter, and so she's, you know... She's her personality has shifted with the times and with the the perception of women and with the debates about you know the roles of women in society, and so in order to find you know a really true voice, I mean there was there was a ton of research. I went back and I just you know read anything I could get my hands on, um, but I I wound up trying to tell a story that was about um, identity and essentially people trying to tell you who or what you are or who or what you should be, and then that identity. Um, rebelling, um, you know, whether it was, you know, something that manifested physically, something that manifested um, just in terms of personality, but this idea of there's a, a presentation to the world and then there's, you know, the true story about who and, and you are and how you view yourself. And um, so I got to work with uh, Emmanuel Lupacino, who is just absolutely fantastic. I actually have a piece of her art hanging in my room right now. Um, and Megan Hetrick and a team of just really phenomenal artists. And like that, that issue is honestly the one that I'm the most proud of. <laughs> it is way up there on our list for best issue of the year. I mean, we oh, all were gosh. over the moon when it was out. So thank you kindly. Well, I'm, I'm sitting looking. You signed a copy for me, a free comic book day. It's sitting here right in front of me. It is that intrepid reporter side. It's the hard-boiled Lois from the original books, the Fleischer cartoons, but the the lovely personal story, the emotional story with the, with her mom and dad and her, and Lucy. That is that is pretty special. That you found a new angle for this character that, as you say, has been going on for seventy-five years. Now, as you say, you were you put a lot of pressure on yourself. Do you figure you succeeded? Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I mean, that makes me just so glad to hear. We have another chance to read you writing some Lois Lane somewhere? 
I am hoping. I mean, like, I would be... I mean, they wouldn't even get to finish the sentence and it would be another steamroller. Um, yeah. <laughs> at this point, really, though, I mean, she's such a phenomenal character. Even if I weren't remotely involved, you know, even if I weren't involved at all, like, just, you know, to have... For her to have a miniseries, for her to have an ongoing, you know, her audience is out there. Um, and so, you know, I would just... I, I would just, you know, push that as hard as I could on everybody that I met. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and before I want to ask you one more question kind of about the, the, the DC stuff before we move on. I, you, you mentioned in passing the, the Lobo stuff. Yeah, uh-huh. You said there's, there's a great story behind it. And I would love to hear <laughs> yeah. your story about uh, handsome Lobo gate. <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure. Um, I mean, part of what we were going for in the new 52 was a way to update the universe, you know, not just as, you know, change for the sake of change, but to actually make it, you know, a relevant um, parallel to the world at large. And so when I was given Lobo, I mean, like, you know, his I loved his whole origin as the parody character of like the hyper-violence of the 80s, and particularly of uh, the 80s action movies. And so if we were going to be bringing him into the New 52, I was told there was going to be a redesign. And, um, you know, when we, we got the, um, the, the, the image that made such a big splash on the Internet... Um, I incorporated it into the script um, as a reinvention of that action hero. So in the 80s, um, with that, that the hyper-masculine action hero, you've got Schwarzenegger, you've got Stallone, you've got, you know, like the oiled muscles, um, you know, like the, the cigar chomp and motorcycle riding, you know, <laughs> rolls up to the roadhouse, smashes some dude in the jaw and gets the girl. Um, and that was what power was. That was what masculine power was as presented through these 80s action movies. Whereas in modern action movies, you've got Daniel Craig's James Bond, you've got, you know, Jason Statham as the transporter, you've got a much sleeker action hero. You've got, you know, these, these men in suits, these men who are very, you know, tightly wound and very controlled and very intense. And it's not a matter of the ostentation of the 80s where you see, you know, at a far distance, you know, the barbarian warlord riding up. It's now about, you know, moving... Um, within these seats of power, it's no longer like, you know, like the roadhouse or like, you know, the, the brawling bar, it's up on the penthouse, it's in the top floor, it's behind, you know, lock and key, it's behind, you know, digital firewalls. And for this, for the modern action hero, it had to be a character that had subtlety to him. It had to be someone who could move in those circles of power, who could be charming, who could seem sincere, um, who could get close to the target and slide the knife in before anyone realized he was an enemy. And so it was still intended to be a parody character, um, but now it was meant to be a parody character of what this modern masculine action hero has become. And so <laughs> and there was uh, some controversy about that redesign. <laughs> I never heard it put like that, though. That makes total sense when explained yeah. like that. Mm-hmm. I, feel like, um, I feel like that conversation got drowned. Um, you know, it was so much they saw a 25-year-old girl writing this character and assumed, I mean, you know, along a sexist line that that had to be the reason. That it had to be a, you know, oh, he's make him sexy. Hmm. And, or at least that was overwhelmingly, I mean, I got a lot of hate mail for it. Um, before the book came out. Like, all the, the hate mail was all before. It was very gendered. Um, a lot of it was threatening. Sorry to bring down the mood. No, no, <laughs> um, please. It's then, important. Uh, then afterwards, um, I got a lot of I got really positive remarks, um, which was very heartening. And, you know, I decided to step back from it because I felt like any more involvement from me would just, you know, would, would cloud it. I would prefer for the character to speak for itself. Um, I'm really excited about Cullen Bunn um, and Riley Brown taking over um, and their take. 
and uh yeah i mean it was it was like it was a really crazy introduction to comics since that was my first solo book um but i really i hope that it works out i mean you know and both characters still exist within the dcu nothing's been taken away Mm -hmm. um so you know i hope it's you know up for the fans with what they want to make of it yeah absolutely um, it, it just goes to show you that, I mean, it, it's no surprise that the internet is prejudgmental and mm-hmm. sexist because that seems to be like it's ma- modus operandi mm-hmm. in general, but it's telling that after the book comes out, you get a ton of praise for yeah. it because once people actually read it and they actually go, okay, right. they judge it for what's there, mm-hmm. they recognize uh, quality. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure they were different people yeah. <laughs> who yeah. gave the hate mail and then who gave and, the praise, but... Well, and to defend like the old school fans, you know, they there are people who responded to it, there are people who didn't respond to it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, you know, no no judgment whatsoever. I mean, you know, I, I did what I could. If it doesn't respond to them, or sorry, if they don't respond to it, then, you know... That's fine. We just, you know, I was I was wrong for the project in their eyes, mm-hmm. but it doesn't remove or it doesn't erase from continuity, um, you know, the old Lobo and you know those books. Like those are still there. No one's taking them away. And mm-hmm. like you know, as far as I'm aware, both characters still fully exist within the New Fifty Two. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, Stephanie, I know you had a question. Yeah. Uh, speaking a bit more generally, you've worked with a number of artists already. Mm-hmm. Is there any one that you've really enjoyed? and you have plans to work with again in the future or you'd um, like to work with again <laughs> i adore megan hetrick i mean she is phenomenal she's coming up for uh, new york city comic-con and she's staying on my couch <laughs> and, um, <laughs> i mean like we we had an amazing time on joker's daughter um and you know we were both we were both very new and um untried in you know the eyes of the community and uh you know we we're given this character that i think people had some major reservations about um, or, you know, weren't, weren't really sure what her deal was. And, uh, you know, we just like, just dove into it, you know, feet first. Um, and we, you know, we were texting at all hours, you know, going back and forth, you know, trying to make this, uh, this one shot just, you know, as rich and as crazy as possible. And, you know, it was the kind of thing where like, we were texting at like one in the morning and she was like, okay, like I'm on this page. Um, are you okay with me making this more disturbing and erotic? I was like, yeah, whatever it is, go for it. Um, and you know, so she was like, she's she's one of my really good friends in comics, and so yeah, I, I you know, I would I would never ask a chance to work with her. It's as a complete sidebar. If she's staying what? on your couch, uh, have you have you tried her pumpkin espresso cake? I have not. You should definitely ask her to bring that because she oh, brought it to I- New York Comic Con last year, <laughs> and I was like eating it at. Uh, Adam Hughes's table and then running around oh, the con being man. like, I just had so much cake! <laughs> so, you should, you should ask seat. her. That'll be yeah. the for staying on my couch. That's the yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Bring it. Or tell her to make it. It's so good. But I, I've, I've been really blessed, though, like, with the artists that I've had a chance to work with. I mean, you know, with, with Wes Craig, I mean, just, like, his phenomenal work on the Batman Annual, um, down to, I mean... The legendary Bill Sienkiewicz is doing um, the the the, the eight page story that I have in the Vertigo uh, quarterly yellow edition, mm. um, and that was just you know when when Shelley Bond told me that I was going to be working with Bill Sienkiewicz, it was like I I need to lie down. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean you know I've I've been really blessed, and every single one of them I mean has been fantastic. Awesome, awesome. Um, now I wanted to ask you about obviously a few months ago we heard about the the Angela. Uh, ongoing series mm-hmm. you're going to be working on uh with i mean 
it's Phil Jimenez and Seventy Hans are the artists, mm-hmm. and then you and Kieran Gillen are are, are the writers. Yep. Uh, what was it like getting that job, and what has this experience been like, kind of working with these amazing, amazing talents? It has been tremendous, and it actually, you know, topically, it it started because of Joker's daughter. Um, Kieran wound up reading uh, that comic, and then when names were coming up for a potential co-writer for the Angela series, um, that was, you know, how he knew of me, more or less, or knew of my work. And uh, so, you know, like, I got an email asking if I would like to, you know, work on this project with him, and it was another case of, like, Okay, real quick tangent. I feel like, honestly, like I am just like a Tumblr fangirl that like escaped into the real world. (laughs) When people tell, you know, when I'm told like, oh, you get to work with this amazing person whose work you completely adore. I don't know how to react professionally. And so a lot of times when I go back through my emails, you know, after hearing like, oh, you know, we'd like to, you know, would you consider working on this project with so-and-so? My first email response is just, oh gosh, in all caps. And then after that, like, uh, you know, a very, like, reasonable email. I'm like, oh, you know, I'd love to. I'm a big fan. But the first ones are always like, oh, geez. Oh, wow. Oh, gosh. What do I do? <laughs> so, <laughs> I had one of those reactions when I was told I'd be working with Kieran, whose birthday is today, by the way. If y'all haven't happy gotten birthday. a chance to tell him happy birthday on Twitter. Um, <laughs> um, and so I'd actually, um, actually first met Kieran at New York City Comic Con last year, and it was right after, you know, the whole Lobo mess, um, and I was kind of bummed out because that seemed to be, not it seemed to be, it completely was the only thing anyone wanted to talk to me about, um, and so we were at a bar, and I was, you know, with my friends, and, you know, we were talking about, like, the whole mess, and, uh, Kieran wound up saying to me, you know, or I wound up saying, you know, I, as far as what I thought my first comic experience was going to be, this was not it. And he asked me, do you remember what my first comic was? And I said, I'm afraid you have me at a disadvantage. And Kieran <laughs> said, no one else remembers either. He said, no one remembers the first comics. They only remember the best comics. Wow. And that really stuck with me. And so, you know, it meant a lot that, like, you know, he took the time out to talk to me. And um, so it was really incredible then when we got to, you know, be on this project together. And I wound up being folded into the tail end of the Marvel retreat over the summer. And it wound up being um, me, Kieran, our editor, Will Moss, and Phil Jimenez, and um, Jonathan, our assistant editor, uh, just all sitting, you know, in this hotel bar, um, you know, in this little booth, and just, just bouncing ideas off of each other. And, you know, Phil was sketching the entire time, like armor, monsters, you know, cover ideas, <laughs> redesigns. Um, I don't think his pen was still the entire time that we were talking. Um, it was just, it was so much fun. And it was so, I mean, there was just like such a sense of like community and like, like surrounding this character. And for it to be such, in a way, such a lonely character to have this sense of, of you know, family that was like, that we were growing her out of. Um, you know, I'm really hoping that we can bring that, that, you know, the, the, that sort of warmth, um, to her personality. Awesome. Awesome. Wow. Is there a, speaking of all these characters and, and wonderful creators you've been working with, is there a character you'd like to take a shot at somewhere <laughs> in the genre without you name it? Oh gosh. See, this is always dangerous because I feel like what makes me fall in love with certain characters is who's working on them. And so when it's like, oh, I'd love to write that character, and by writing her or him, I would completely destroy the thing that appeals to her. <laughs> um, that being said, I would knife someone for a chance at Vixen. I really... <laughs> wow. Um, yeah, and she's, she's a character that I feel like gets overlooked really often, but I, I mean, 
whenever, you know, it was make-believe when I was a kid, it was always animal powers and always being vixen or, you know, a complete vixen knockoff. <laughs> um, and then, let's see, I'd say Vixen, Poison Ivy, um, Kate Kane is my favorite superhero, hands down. Um, and then, let's see, Mira is another one that I, I honestly think would have, like, you know, potential uh, doing her own thing. Um, I really miss Cass Kane and Stephanie Brown um, and Donna Troy. And, uh, yeah, those are the ones who have been, like, rattling around in my head recently. Okay. Uh, maybe you should put a team together. Yeah, I mean, I've, <laughs> I, I've been thinking about it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and you just had um, Butterfly just came out uh, this past week Mm -hmm. Uh, and uh, why don't you tell us I mean again we're not this this is the first time we're not talking about a a pre-made character so why don't you tell us a little bit what Butterfly is and then um, you know let us know about the process and Mm -hmm. that that whole working with Arkea and and all that Mm mm-hmm um, well, the, the character in the story are just the baby of um, this writer named Arash Amel, who is probably best known for Grace of Monaco and Erased, and um, is going to be penning the War Games remake. And he had, you know, this idea of this, this spycraft story that was not, you know, it was completely removed from the idea of spectacle and, you know, explosions and car chases, and really had a much bigger focus on the psychological traumas and injuries of people who had gone through, you know, like, and survived this world of spycraft. And so um, they wound up sending me this, like, 40-page lookbook, this gorgeous thing, um, and introducing me to the project. And, you know, as soon as I finished it, it was like, I have to be involved in this. Um, And so it was uh, that Arash had the story planned and that I essentially... Um, plotted it out and taught it to be a comic. Um, and it was, uh, <laughs> I thought at the time that when they approached me that they, um, you know, wanted me for it. And I didn't realize until a while after that it had actually been a bake-off. Um, because I walked in and I said, you know, when, uh, and said, okay, this is what we're going to do with the book. You know, it's, we've got two protagonists. We've got um, the spy and we've got her father who was, you know, also part of this spy organization. And we're going to split the book in half down the middle. Her story is going to go um, left to right, you know, heading forward through time. His story is going to go backwards through time. It's going to be set in two different time periods. We're going to use two completely different styles for paneling, completely different color palettes, completely different, you know, lining, uh, inking technique. And, you know, create something that um, makes a completely subjective and unreliable narrator when we're in each of their worlds. And, you know, they meet in a double splash or in a single splash, you know, in each of the issues. Um, you know, that signifies that big change. And it's going to be, you know, this this struggle between um, not style as well as psyche um, going forward. And so (laughs) I came in and just sort of, like, declared that this is what we're going to do. So I'm really grateful that they wound up liking that idea. Um, That it didn't, like, look like the world's, like, most vain rando rookie. (laughs) Um... But, uh, but yes, that's, I mean, that's a big part of who she is. Butterfly um, was tapped by this uh, project, Project Delta. Um, she's not a secret agent. Um, so, you know, people are drawing a lot of parallels to Black Widow, um, who I adore, and we definitely need a Black Widow movie. I'm just putting that out there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but she's really more of an actress. She's designed to lose, you know, contact with her handlers for months at a time. She's, you know, designed to essentially lose herself 
within these roles. And, you know, it's the same, the same chameleon um, idea that we were talking about earlier with, you know, being able to, um, you know, twist and wind through the circles of power without anyone really identifying that you're there. And uh, she winds up discovering that her father was also involved in this organization at a different period in time, and she completely idolized him. And, um, you know, without, like, going into it too much, she essentially realizes that this legacy that she's been fed about, who her father was, is a complete fabrication. And so then has to, you know, sort of struggle with, you know, what she's done in the name of this man, um, you know, in the name of her loyalty to this project and her belief in this greater good, um, you know, against what has actually been committed. Um, and then, you know, uh, trying to push forward to make this identity of her own. Uh, so it's it, it's really crazy. It's really fun. <laughs> awesome, yeah. Uh, it, it, and if people haven't read it yet, they should definitely, definitely check it out. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, a little bit of time travel for us, cause we haven't, but Stephanie is going to be talking about it for her book of the week uh, oh. this week. <laughs> so. yeah. Thank you very much. Or as far as when this is this, this gets aired, she talked about it for her book of the week. Yes, <laughs> it was wonderful. I said such nice things. She did. Oh, well, thank you. Um, and uh, talking about one more project, Steve. I know you had some questions about an upcoming project. I Marguerite's do. Doing. Yeah. Uh, well, staying in the boom and archaea realm, uh, I want to know, Marguerite, how excited are you to be writing the TV to comic adaptation of Fox's Sleepy Hollow? Sleepy Hollow is my favorite project right now. Don't tell my other projects I said this. <laughs> how did you manage to how did you manage to get on that project? <laughs> um that actually uh it started um I guess at San Diego Comic Con last year, before I even had a single thing published. Um I'm a diehard Grant Morrison fan and I really wanted to see his only panel at that year San Diego and I knew that they did not clear between um rooms for those panels and so I stood in line for this TV show I'd never heard of um <laughs> you know thinking like ah when everyone leaves for this I'm going to dart to the front and get a good seat <laughs> and they wound up um you know airing the entire pilot of the show and it was like it was dark and campy and charming and fun and I felt I was just really, really into it. Um, and then afterwards, when it finally aired proper, I went about and, you know, uh, indoctrinated all of my friends. And so I wound up meeting um, Daphna Pleban, who's an editor at Boom, who was also a major fan of the show. And with our enthusiasms combined, we were like, well, what if we, you know, pitched it to Fox? Um, you know, the idea of doing, um, you know, this, this comics adaptation. And they liked the ideas that we came up with. And it has, I mean, it's just been an absolute treat. I mean, working with George, um, working with Noelle Stevenson, working with Tamara. Um, it's been, oh, wow, it's wow. been just a phenomenal experience. That's fantastic. Uh, mm-hmm. Could you tell us at what point in Ichabod and Abby's uh, adventures will the story take place? Um, all of them take place within the first season, you know, so if you're not, you're not caught up, no worries. And I try and make it, you know, one of our big goals was to make it as accessible as possible, even to people who weren't necessarily familiar with the source material. Mm -hmm. Um, so, uh, you know, the first issue takes place, um, probably around, uh, episode four, the second probably closer to episode seven or eight, and then our two-part finale, um, just before the actual finale of the season. Nice. So it's like a companion. Yep, uh-huh. Uh, and my last question, do you have a favorite character from the show uh, like that you're looking forward to writing and exploring? Abby. <laughs> I nice. love Abby. Abby is my Khaleesi. <laughs> I am a huge, huge fan of that show. I was actually just watching the first episode of season two this morning, and I'm totally back into it. I watch them with my housemate. 
<laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. I'm really excited about that book. I can't wait to read that. Thank you. I really, really appreciate it. I mean, like, it's it's been such a wild ride. And it's been such a fun thing to work on. I mean, it really has. Like, despite, like, the doom, gloom, and evisceration, like, it's it's just been a treat the whole way. Sweet. <laughs> I, love, oh, you have... I love your oh, fever for horror. <laughs> you, you, you talk about it with such glee and fervor. It's awesome. I love it. I really do. I mean, I could, you know, I could ramble on forever. I could just, you know, I could analyze any horror movie and just and pay someone else to let me do that. <laughs> it's fantastic. <laughs> uh, Bob, do you have any other questions? Well, sure. One quick one. It comes right back around to the beginning. You came at the to comics from novels. If you could write a novel about a comic book character, would you consider doing that? And who might oh. that be about? Huh. That had never occurred to me. Um, I mean, so much with the characters, you know, I think of them as so tied to the medium. And that was one of the big things that came up um, with the adaptation uh, of Sleepy Hollow and, you know, the design of Butterfly, because I wanted to really do something that couldn't be executed in another medium. Um, you know, so... Well, it's very interesting. I don't know who I'd bring across, you know, like into into a different direction. Huh? Well, it's, it's um, for, you think on it for the next time you're on the show, Margaret. Yes. You have an answer for us then. <laughs> Maybe Lois. You know, if there's no other way to get more Lois stuff out there, I'll do that. Sure. <laughs> um. So, I mean, Margaret, we, we've we, we've we've kept you for longer than we said we were going to. No worries. Uh, you were wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, why don't you tell people uh, where they can find uh, you uh, on Twitter and, and on the other interwebs? Okay, super. Um, yeah, uh, my my handle on Twitter, Tumblr, Instagram, and Gmail is just Evil Marguerite. E V I L M A R G U E R I T E. Um, so yeah, I'm super active on Twitter. Um, I like I, I'm really bad about checking my email, um, and I'm pretty active on Tumblr. Um, but yeah, Twitter's the best place if you want to come and hang out and chat about horror movies. Nice. There you go. Yes. Mm-hmm. Sweet. Uh, Butterfly is obviously on stands right now. And uh, when is the first issue of Sleepy Hollow hitting? Um, Sleepy Hollow is uh, October 15th, though we will have advanced issues of number one at New York City Comic Con. Oh, All right. Awesome. Cool. Awesome. Um, and hopefully we'll get to see you at New York City Comic Con. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, Marguerite Bennett, thank you so much for joining us on Talking Comics. Thank y'all. Have a great night. You too. Well, thank you so much to to Marguerite. Uh, she was delightful, as we predicted. Delightful. So delightful. Uh, Absolutely. She known. She was awesome. Um, uh, yeah, and make sure you guys follow her on Twitter and, and check out her stuff because it's, it's definitely worth it. Man, she's not evil at all. No, she's not. Right. Despite her Twitter talent. handle. <laughs> um, but let's get to what's on the shelves right now. Yeah. Uh, from Avatar Press, we've got. Crossed Badlands, number 62, God is Dead, number 21, and Uber, number 18. Um, new imprint, Black Mask Comics, which is co-founded by Steve Niles. Oh. Um, critical Hit, number one, and Last Born, number one. Um, from Boom Studios, Adventure Time, number 32. Uh, we've got Cloaks, number two of four. Fiction Squad, number one. Garfield, yeah. number 30. <laughs> Uh, regular show number fifteen, RoboCop number four, Suicide Risk number eighteen, and Woods number six. Um, from Dark Horse Comics, Angel and Faith season ten number seven. Um, we've got Concrete Park Respect number two of five, Dream Thief the Escape number four of four. Um, we've got y- Usagi Yojimbo Senso number three. Uh, from DC Comics, Action Comics number thirty five. 
almost done with the Doom storyline. It's the oh. last, it's the aftermath issue. Um, American Vampire Second Cycle, number five. Aquaman and the Others, number six. Batman 66 meets the Green Hornet, number five of six. Um, we've got uh, Batman Eternal, number 26. Batman Superman, number 14. Uh, Detective Comics, number 35. Ferrist, number 30. Uh, we've got Flash Season Zero, number one, which I believe is a, the TV, TV show, show. to tie him. Um, we've got Gotham Academy, number yeah. one. Yeah. Uh, Grayson, number three. Green Arrow, number 35. Um, Green Lantern, New Gods, Godhead, number one. Hinterkind, number 12. Injustice, Gods Among Us, year two, annual, number one, which is actually also co-written by Marguerite Bennett. Um, we've got Justice League number 34, Justice League 3000, number 10, Lobo, number one, Looney Tunes, number 221, Names, number two of eight, New 52, Future's End, number 22, Swamp Thing, number 35, Wonder Woman, number 34, uh, from Dynamite Entertainment. And, actually... Brendan Fletcher's going to be on Misfits next week, too, to talk about Gotham Academy and Batgirl. So right, You far exceeded your time to mention your podcast <laughs> no, at this point. It's applicable. Yes, it is applicable, but you you ruined it when it wasn't applicable earlier in the show. I didn't. You did. The girl who cried Misfit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> From Dynamite Entertainment, we've got Blood Queen, number five. Um, we've got Chaos, number six. Uh, we've got Damnation of Charlie Wormwood, number one. Um, we've got, let's see, Jim Butcher's The Dresden Files, War Cry, number five. Mercy Thompson, number one. New Vampirella, number five. Sherlock Holmes versus Harry Houdini, number one. Um, let's see, from IDW, Angry Birds Comics, number five. We've got um, Kill Shakespeare, The Mask of Night, number four. Popeye Classic, number 27. Rogue Trooper Classics, number six. Uh, we've got Silent Hill, Downpour, and Story, number two. Um, Squitter, number four. Uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, number 38. And X-Files, Year Zero, number three. What? No Transformers. <gasps> well, they do have... I, I kind of just want to quickly say that the Windblade series, that was an all-female team. The mm-hmm. trade for that is out. It's true. Oh. It is. So, if you guys were interested in, you know, checking that out in a complete series, there you go. And right. they'll be on the Misfits, right? <laughs> well, no. Uh, Thanks, Bob. I was trying. <laughs> From Image Comics, we've got Alex plus Ada, number nine. Um, Burn the Orphan- Orphanage, Reign of Terror, number five. Cutter, number one. Fade Out, number two. God Hates Astronauts, number two. <laughs> Hackslash, Son of Samhain, number four. Little Depressed Boy, Supposed to Be There too, number Aww. one. Madame Frankenstein, number six. Um, Master Plasty, which is a one-shot. Morning Glory is number 41. Nailbiter, number six, as well as the Nailbiter Volume 1 trade is out. Night World, number three of four. Uh, Peter Panzerfaust, number 21. Protectors, Inc., number nine. Rat Queens, number eight. Um, Walking Dead number one thirty two and Witchblade number one seventy eight. <laughs> Don't kill me. Wait, one more thing. There's also the Black Hand Comics um, hardcover that's coming out tomorrow, and that's by Wes Craig, who does Deadly Class, and it's a collection of his web web comics, oh, cool. which is really cool. It's a bunch of short stories that he did online. So that's out, and you should check it out because it's really cool. Definitely. And if Bobby, if I could. If those uh, those of you picking up Morning Glories, be careful with issue number forty one. There was a mass misprint, and the end that reveals a very large part of the story is actually on the inside cover at the beginning of the book. 
Oh, wow. <laughs> so just... you might want to, you know, page past that really quick and see if you can't get your bearings that way. Oh, wow. I feel like they have more problems with that stuff than most books do. What, Morning Glories or Image? Yeah, Morning Glories. Um, I don't remember too much from the past. I feel like I with when they came out with like the season two premiere one, the one was a dollar. I remember Robbie like I just sent a bunch of them back. Oh like, yes, yes, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, Marvel Comics. We've got um, let's see here: Black Widow number eleven, Bucky Barnes, The Winter Soldier Ooh. number one, Captain America number twenty-five, which is the last issue of this regular series. Um, we've got uh, Dark Tower: The Drawing of the Three, The Prisoner number three, Death of Wolverine number three of four. Um, Edge of Spider-Verse, number four. Fantastic Four Annual, number one. Figment, number five. Guardians 3000, number one. Which brings back a lot of the original Guardians of the Galaxy. I believe it's written by Dan Abnett. Oh. Yes. Um, yes. Um, Legendary Star-Lord, number four. Uh, we've got uh, Men of Wrath by Jason Aaron, number one. Uh, Miracle Man, number 11. Moon Knight, number eight. Um, we've got Silver Surfer, number six, Spider-Man 2099, number four, Thor, number one Ooh. is out, Uncanny Avengers, number 25, and X-Men, number 20. Um, I'm sure we'll be talking about Thor next week. Yes. Uh, from Oni Press, Brides of Helheim, number one is out. Um, let's see here. From uh, Titan Comics, Doctor Who, the 11th Doctor, number three is out, and so is Sally of the Wasteland, number three. And from Valiant Entertainment, we've got Armor Hunters, number four, Armor Hunters Aftermath, number one, Bloodshot, number 24. Um, just quick note about Thor. Um, yes. And, like, this isn't kind of, this is just kind of a pre-warning so that people don't get, like, super angry or anything. But I believe, Steve, you were talking about the finale of Thor yes. last week or the week before. Mm-hmm. Um, and you were saying that it didn't really feel like the end of the series. Yes. Uh, and... Apparently, this number one kind of acts as the end. Like, it doesn't, it's not actually, there's only like one or two pages of She Thor. Okay. In this new Thor. Mm-hmm. So, that's kind of just like a pre warning to everybody. It's kind of like what, it's like the end of the last Thor series, but in the beginning of the new book. Okay. I am know. totally down with that. Just so long as I get some answers, I am totally cool. <laughs> just, just so anyone who was expecting her to be. The, you in know, the whole book, yeah, and yeah. two pages. Yeah, yeah. Right. yeah. And one more quick thing: uh, I talked about Battling Boy a little while back, and Battling Boy: The Rise of Aurora West, which is like the story of Battling Boy, but from um, the daughter of Haggard West's um, perspective. That's out tomorrow too, and that's oh, Pulp Hope. Oh, so, right. That's uh, I, that, that imprint. Usually, I don't isn't show up on the main yeah, list. That's why yeah. I brought it up because it's not on first second. Usually, first second. That's right. Yeah. Um, but I just wanted to mention it because it's a really like I, I mean I haven't read this but Battling Boy was fantastic and if you liked that I'm pretty sure Aurora West will be right up your alley. Cool, awesome. Um, all right, so if you guys want to get in touch with us, it's at Talking Comics on Twitter, Facebook.com/slash Talking Comics, and podcast at TalkingComicBooks.com. And of course, go to TalkingComicBooks.com, the website, reviews, articles, um, columns, TV recaps podcasts it's all there um the podcast which will not be named is there obviously uh just did uh an issue on uh their titular (laughs) tv show Um, it's hosted by stephanie cook and also uh, melissa megan and mara wood um it's the misfits obviously we've we've heard so much about it already what or not enough (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, we've got uh, Talking Movies, obviously, uh, hosted by Brian Verderosa and Chris Oliphant. Uh, last week, they interviewed the writer of the RoboCop remake, which was really, really interesting. I think people should check that out. And this week, they reviewed The Fisher King. So, oh, uh, I love yeah, that. make sure to, to check that out as well. Um, we also have Talking Valiant with, with Adam Shaw. Um, and uh, of course, talking games with our, our very own Steve Say. Um, you are you are not on the show this week. I am not, but uh, in my absence, the crew is doing their five favorite video game characters of all time. It's a big list. Wow. It is a big list. Yeah. Are you going to write in, Steve, with your with yours? Um, I'm sure that uh, the following week, uh, which we will have a very, very, very special guest, Mr. Hugh Perry. Oh, that's right. Yeah, be uh, yeah. gracing the talking game scene. Um, I will share my answers uh, that week. Cool, awesome, and also, guys, um, it's not kind of officially part of the network, but uh, Jeff Schaefer just brought back uh, the Man Cave Podcast. Oh, uh, way to go, Jeff! Yeah, so go to mancavepodcast.com and and check that out if you guys wanna wanna hear him. He's obviously reviewed Thor: The Dark World with us. Um, yeah, and uh, Bob, do you have anything that you want to say before we? <laughs> Um, no, I'll wait to just before you're about to end. Okay, okay. So, um, yeah. you go and touch me personally. It's at Bobby Shortle on Twitter. Stephanie, I'm at Hello Cookie. Steve, I am at Dead underscore Anchorus. And Bob, your email address. Well, I did join in AOL chat room. That's true. Yeah. yeah. Keyword <laughs> Bob Ryer. Yeah, no, seriously, it's Bob Ryer at talkingcomicbooks.com. Awesome. Awesome. Um, well, New York Comic Con is super, super close. Mm-hmm. It's like just over a week away if you're if you're listening to this on wednesday um it's coming up quick uh lining up some good content for you guys um so yeah should be should be a good time if you guys are going to be there please let us know hit us up um, at talking comics uh on twitter or on our facebook page or drop us an email at podcast com and let us know when you're going to be there and we'll we'll definitely try to meet up with yeah. any listeners who are around mm-hmm. um but that's gonna do it for talking comics podcast. and oh. i'm not going to be at new york comic con but oh sorry um, Stephanie I totally forgot actually, about this it's not for like a little while still but just FYI I just got announced as a guest for Malta Comic Con um one of the showrunners Christopher uh he's a big fan of talking comics and so I'm going to be doing some talks and stuff um while I'm there and that's not until November 28th or sorry 29th and 30th but um if there seems to be a few people in Malta that listen to talking comics. So if you're one of those people, or if you're visiting, because why not? It's Malta. Um, please come to my talks so that chairs aren't empty and stuff. And I'm not sad and talking Aww. to nobody. <laughs> I'm sure that will not be the case. Yeah. So a sentence I never thought I'd hear ever. Apparently we have a bunch of listeners in Malta. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's crazy. like when people are like, I'm big in Japan. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> We're actually celebrities in Malta. We just don't know it. But yeah, so it's really cool. I'm really, really excited for the show. I've heard great things about it. So come to Malta with me. Awesome. Awesome. <laughs> what is the official language of Malta? Maltese and Italian well, and English. The, okay, good. So you're going to have translators. I, I feel like a lot of people speak English. Um, just not here in America. Yeah. Yeah. Because we, we don't understand but you at all. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> all right. Sorry. So that's going to do that's it for the, the Talking yeah. Comics <laughs> podcast for this week. For Bob. Good night. Stephanie. Bye. And Steve. Be sure to listen to the misfits. I have been Bobby. <laughs> Until next time on Talking Comics. To be continued. <laughs>